Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the prosecution is not going to get that man today. No, because I'm going to get him. This is the Hagman Report for today. It is Monday, July sixth, July sixteenth, twenty eighteen. I've got to tell you, I, I'm behind the studio desk looking at this rolling screen of headlines. And um I, I've just I, I'm so uh as you are, folks, perhaps uh inundated with these uh with with the severity of the headlines. And by severity I mean the uh, absolutely obnoxious perversion of information about our President Donald Trump by the deep state, by the members of the shadow government. And, and I can't help but think back to Kevin Shipp. And uh, Kevin Shipp, who actually broke information about his book from the Company of Shadows on our show right after it was published. And... Uh, of course, this has since gone on to talk about the shadow government and the deep state, the deep state, a subset of the shadow government. So what I'm seeing today, the reason I'm leading off this way, is when I'm looking at the headlines, I'm seeing both the the attempted puncturing of our national fabric by the deep state. I'm trying to formulate a word or like a word picture here, uh, by members of the deep state. Again, a subset of the shadow government already in place, the permanent bureaucracy that's in place. What I mean, and, and perhaps the foremost part of this, and, the, and, I, and I began hearing rumblings about this earlier in the day. Of course, President Donald Trump had a press conference and has been met with Putin and, and, uh, John Brennan came out and he, he sent a tweet about uh, about that press conference, and he described President Donald Trump, our president. He described that press conference as an impeachable offense and treasonous. Now, a number of a number of outlets have report has report have reported on this. Uh, Trump throws a server wrench into Mueller's indictment machine. I, this is perhaps the the most coherent article of the news reports out there, and this is from LifeZet.com. Imagine being in a foreign country and being Barack Hussein Obama, and imagine meeting with Vladimir Putin, and then being challenged by an associate uh, Associated Press reporter to say whether he believes now this is during the during this press conference or post meeting press conference whether he believes U.S. intelligence or Russia's Vladimir Putin uh, with respect to uh, uh, with respect to the uh, uh, Russian interference and the DNC hack and other such nonsense. That sets up the stage for the Twitter message 
by former CIA director and Marxist Muslim and communist voter John Brennan, who has blocked me personally on Twitter, by the way. I, I don't know whether I should take that as... A, 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 I, I'm not sure the last time I've ever... Ha- I, I don't think I've ever had a an ex-CIA official block me. Uh, but uh, having said that, the Twitter by John Brennan was was in my view one of the worst exchanges or one of the worst things I've seen a former uh, agency member of the uh, uh, intelligence agency ever say now let me get into this a little bit I apologize for being a little bit uh, behind here I've got so many notes but let me see if I can uh, let me see if I can if I've got the exact wording of the of the tweet that was sent out I know it's in it's, I know it's in one of these uh uh, one of these, where am I looking here? One of these articles. But nonetheless, the accusation was about treason and accusing President Donald Trump of treason. He was backed into a corner by, and bullied, uh, in my view, the president was by our own press to to be compelled to respond in that venue, I believe that the Associated Press reporters acted without decorum, without any kind of respect for our president. And if you think about this, if you think about how this all played out, you'll see, I mean, you, you can see what I mean. Imagine Putin, Donald Trump, press conference, and then you've got American reporters challenging the president in front of Vladimir Putin. How do you think that would have worked out with Barack Hussein Obama? Folks, again, you're listening to the Hagman Report on this day, the 16th day of July, 2018. It's a Monday. Bottom of the hour, we're going to have a very special dynamic duo joining us. We're going to have Matt Bracken along with um, um, Stuart Rhodes. Thank you, Eric, the tech. And then, of course, followed by Peter Barry Chaka. So it's going to be an interesting program. And, and the title or the this episode, the theme of this episode, what happens when the right begins pushing back against the communist left? Can you can you see it? Can you feel it? I, I certainly can. Before we go any further, I do want to mention that tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Lightstream.com. Let me tell you something. I, I can't remember. I I had, I've been talking about this for so long. It was just this past. Uh, it was yesterday when I saw my niece Kathy who's a registered nurse at a local hospital. And she came to me right about the time when Lightstream came to us and said, you know what, uh, we'd like to, I'd like you to talk about us in your program. And what Lightstream is, of course, is a credit card consolidation loan completely online. And it was the answer to Kathy, my niece's, my wife's niece, actually. So it was an answer to her prayers. She was going through this very acrimonious and very difficult divorce left with a lot of debt. And she said, just to be clear, she said, yeah, you can talk about my experience. So we looked online, and it was just about that same time when Lightstream approached us, and wouldn't you know it, it was a perfect fit. So if you are thinking about saving money this summer, why not start paying less interest on your credit card balances? Refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. 
I'm going to tell you something. It's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. Lightstream offers credit card consolidations loan loans from 5.89 APR, 5.89% APR with auto pay. It's lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 18% APR. In Kathy's case, she was paying like 17.5. I mean, it was, it, when I looked at the very, variance in rates on, on the credit cards, on her credit cards, when she came to me for advice, I was astounded at how much money she was paying in interest. So what she did was she went to lightstream.com. That's lightstream.com. And, uh, she filled out an online, everything was online. It was so simple. It was so easy. And as a matter of fact, she got the funds to pay off the credit cards and to consolidate them that very same day. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees. So say goodbye to high interest credit card rates of the summer and start saving right away with Lightstream. And you can ask my niece. I'm going to tell you what. She, she is ever so thankful that Lightstream handled her difficult situation. But here's the great part about this now. This is where it affects you. Because sometimes this just makes sense. And I was never, a, you know, I've, I've gone through, look, I'm 60 years old. I've, I've gone through the process of, oh, well, let's, let's refinance our credit and such. And boy, sometimes you can get taken for a ride. Not in this case, Lightstream saves the day. Listeners and viewers to this program, you can save even more with an, with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this very special discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Hagman. I want to spell it for you because this is important. Okay. It's light, like L-I-G-H-T, lightstream, S-T-R-E-A-M. Again, L-I-G-H-T, S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash Hagman. Right there. Already low rates, even lower rate with auto pay and this discount. Again, lightstream.com slash Hagman. Now I've got to tell you this disclaimer. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.50% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offer, offers are subject to change without notice. But folks, visit lightstream.com slash Hagman for more information. And by the way, Hagman is H-A-G-M-A-N-N. I think you'll be impressed. I really do. Um, and, and I want to thank Lightstream for what they do. And again, sometimes it just makes absolute sense to, to, to do that. But take a look at getting back to the subject at hand. The big story, I believe, is, are the remarks by John Brennan, both to Brian Williams on there, as well as his Twitter messages. And about Donald Trump calling his remarks treasonous. Oh, here's the tweet right here. Sent today at 11.52 a.m. Eastern Time. Donald Trump's press conference performance in Helsinki raises to and exceeds the threshold of, in in quotation marks, high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of treasonous. Not only were Trump's comments imbecilic, he is wholly in the pocket of Putin. Republican patriots, where are you? And then three question marks. That that was the tweet sent by John Brennan. And then, of course, going moving forward, the transcript of his exchange with Brian Williams is on live set. 
I believe you would uh, you would find that very interesting. And of course, that was Brian Williams asking uh, asking uh, John Brennan about his exchange or what he said on Twitter. That that exchange is all out there in the transcript. And he just added more fuel to the fire in this particular situation. Now, here is the reason why I believe this is perhaps the most important part of all of this. You have got John Brennan, the former head of the Central Intelligence Agency, a guy who voted at one point not out of not out of some whimsical, youthful indiscretion, but a guy well-educated, well-informed, who voted for communist Gus Hall for president back in 1976. And why? Because he believed he could be one to change. What kind of change? Communism. Again, not a youthful indiscretion. Subsequent interviews provided that. And as a matter of fact, as he was preparing to be employed by the Central Intelligence Agency, he was worried that that would be a non-starter with the CIA. I mean, after all, who wants a communist or someone who voted for a communist in the CIA, especially during the height of the Cold War back in the mid-70s and even into the 80s? And think about that. Think about the times back then. So, And also, the communist Muslim, John Brennan, I believe personally, based on everything John Guandalo has said and others have said, that he converted to Islam. Now we know that Islam and communism are only compatible because of their end game objectives, sort of like Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. They loathe each other personally, but their end game objectives are similar. So this is what we're this is what we're looking at here. I would, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, if this were a court, if this were a courtroom, I would, I would certainly present this as, as exhibit A in terms of the activities of the shadow government and the subset of that, the deep state and their continuing attempts to unseat Donald Trump. That's just not all they, that they want to do. They want to destabilize the United States of America. They want to destabilize Donald Trump. They want to destabilize our country. Burn it down, basically. That's what, what the issue is. Now, Joe, I, I, uh, I had talked about this. Yep. And you heard what I said. Do you happen to have the, Yes, I do. I got that uh, more. Okay, the the, the uh, definition of treason. Because let's look at it. No, of all of all people, you would think that the head of the CIA would understand, would know. If, yeah. If if the definition of treason. So what is the definition so, of treason? Before we get into that, I just want sure. to add to what you said about Brennan. We have also Laura Ingram interviewed a another former CIA director, James. Wolvey, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, and she asked the question uh, in response to the new charges, have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? And he went on to, to paint this narrative, oh, but it was for the good of the system. We did it for good reasons. Laura then asked him, we don't do that now, do we? Wolves' response was literally num, 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 <laughs> like a, uh, some cartoon or, or uh, 
kid channel character who says that. I believe uh, actually said that. Yes, yes, and, and that's the reason I posted the Mark Dice video up on Hagman Report today, because not only is Rand Paul's statement in there, his statements about uh, what he believes is going on with this investigation, but also the fact that this guy and many others, uh, and Mark read through some tweets. Well, you were by the way, you were referencing James Woolsey. I'm Woolsey, sorry. I'm yeah. sorry. Okay, yeah. I got to change that in there. But the uh, information Rand Paul brought to uh, to the American public's attention was that. The uh, Russians were not, this is not the only time a country has spied on or tried to interfere in an election. There's been a study done by Carnegie Mellon over the last 50 years showing the U.S. interfering in 81 different times in other nations' elections. So, to play it as it's some sort of, uh, you know, brand new thing is just disingenuous. But, and especially by the people who are trying to implement well, that comp- well, comp- well, here's here's my concern, and, and this is why the, the, the program is structured the way it is tonight. And, and folks, Weigh in on this. I mean, you you tell us. Can can you see how the 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 communist left? I'm not even going to call them socialists or progressives. The, the communist left. Can you see how they're pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing, and and they're doing everything in their power to destabilize our nation, to our, destabilize our president, to to gum up the works from federal judgeships. And and by the way, here's here's one. And I'm not. I don't want to change the subject yet, but. But you talk about federal judgeships, and I believe that the uh, Democrats or the socialists, or, or I'm sorry, the communists in, in Congress, I believe they're holding up some 149 or 179 uh, judicial appointments on the federal level. But here's wow, that goes uh, right along with Zabinsky's Zbigniew Brzezinski's blueprint the, on how to yeah. how to do just that. So. Yeah, and, and that that book, by the way, is one of the most interesting books uh, that, that you've got. But but here we we've got a Bush appointed judge, a federal judge, announcing an end to national borders, suspends deportations. Daniel Horowitz, your good friend, wrote this at the conservative review dot com. I would suggest everyone read this and follow uh, Daniel Horowitz. He's a tremendous young man, and, and his mind is he's a brilliant writer. But you've got one judge. Think think about this. How in the world can this happen? One federal judge stopping or or appearing to end national borders and suspending deportations. We've we've spoken about this before. Yeah, but and this is but how the, does this happen? This is dubbed the resistance. Right. Uh, Brzezinski says about the Western Constitution and how it's different from uh, many other systems of government. I just want to read this one short excerpt. Yeah, uh, it, please. He says this: the con- uh, the concept of the Constitution implied in such a statement where he's referring originally to the Russian Constitution is not all that of the Western tradition with its protections of the individual against the state its divisions of power but rather the opposite no one has any rights and all power must be concentrated in the hands of the victorious proletariat that is to say its leaders right the new constitution in 1923 seemed to establish a representative government but by no means abandoned the ideology of class warfare but rather institutionalized it. And it goes on to say, in retrospect, its democratic features may appear like mere facade, but mm, the Constitution yep. actually epitomized the proletarian phase of the Soviet Union's evolution. And then it goes on to compare that to what we are seeing here in America, which, which constitutional law, which was made a, a key figure by many governments, unless it is interpreted and implemented properly, where he says, Revolutionary right, governments right. and and peoples redefine it. 
But, but Unless you okay. adhere so, to strict observance of it, it's not going to stay the Constitution. Okay, so, so with that book, which, which was published, I think, in 1953 or there, yeah. or, or 70, or when was it? It had uh, a few different ones, but this All one, right. I think, is the sixth edition from 56. Okay, now, that's from Zygmunt Brzezinski, yeah. right? Now, think how this works. You've got Mika Brzezinski. On, on Morning Joe, mar- marrying Joe Scarborough, right? Or married mm-hmm. to. Mika Brzezinski, the daughter of Zygmunt Brzezinski. Zygmunt Brzezinski inserting himself during the Nixon era. Um, uh, well, Carter, uh, uh, more, more appropriately, but, uh, or, or deeper. And the, the, the path that we have gone, the, the path that our government, or that is to say that the shadow government has taken and where they have taken us to. So when you look at, and if I'm, if I can kind of toot our own horn for a second, when you look at our shows, the combination of our shows, the shows that John, Joe and I put together, um, that have people such as Diana West and, and others very, very familiar with, with, with the history of communism and how it, it was such a threat. Oh, how, by the way, oh, how I wish I would have known when he was alive, Amstead and Evans. Um, that is to say that, that we are looking today at this last grasp of power by the shadow government, which represents the communist objective, because they know Donald Trump is just tearing apart all of their dreams, all of their hopes for this collectivist, collectivist utopia, which doesn't exist. And that's, right. that's why, too, that Ortiz uh, woman from New York... Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you. Boy, did I mess that name up, right? And uh, the, there, there's another individual, a man from California, full-blown, full-blown uh, communist, in my view although Bill's himself is a democratic socialist, they're bringing these people out, and they're trying to really drum up the support for these people at the electorate level. Okay, so, uh, and, and this, this is why Bernie Sanders, for example, was such a threat, in my view, as was Hillary Clinton to our nation. And, and to talk about this more, two individuals, unbelievable, Stuart Rose from Oath Keepers and Matt Bracken. Matt Bracken, just a marvelous uh, uh, author, and Stuart Rhodes, the founder of Oath Keepers. And I got to tell you, I, I, Joe and I sat and we spoke with uh, uh, Stuart Rhodes at length in the green room. In still not enough time though. It was yeah. only like what forty minutes. We didn't get. I, I'll didn't... tell you though, we I think what we had uh, fifteen minutes on air, but we spoke at length in the green room off the record. And, and Stuart Rhodes is a is just a fantastic guy. Yep. Uh, so uh, I'll tell you, uh, let me just say this. If you're not an Oath Keeper, and you can, everyone can be an Oath Keeper, uh, join, join Oath Keepers. And I would highly recommend that. Yeah, law enforcement, you can become a member. Non-law enforcement, you become an associate member. Right. Now, we're members, okay, because of the detective uh, investigator background. Oh, it's our white privilege. <laughs> yeah, the white privilege. Uh Boy, I don't have a comeback for that. No, I just good. came that's off the top good. of my head. But, but anyway, so, so that's coming up at the bottom of the hour. And again, 
looking at tonight as uh, that being the theme, and the reason, again, the reason I spent so much time on that is look at the desperation in the comments of John Brennan, and then look at who, and this is the other part of it, you've got the government and the intelligence community. Combine that with what you heard with the struck hearings. Combine that with what you know about Comey, with what you know about Lynch and, and others within the intelligence and the justice system. Oh, and you mean that they're non-biased? They're, yeah. they're non-biased yeah, Trump supporters. That's right. No, you asked me a question a few minutes yeah, ago treason. about treason. Yeah, what, what but is I the expanded definition? on that because we have a few parts of uh, 18 USC code 2381 through 2386, I believe, six right. or seven. But it it's not just treason because there's also sedition, cons- seditious conspiracy, right. advocating to overthrow <laughs> government. But we'll start with treason, which is 2381 USC code. It says whoever owning allegiance to the United States, levies war against them, or adheres to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort within the United States or elsewhere, is guilty of treason, and shall suffer death, or shall be imprisoned, not less than five years, and fined under this title, but not less than $10,000. Now, remember, this originally was written, what, in... Well, uh, it it doesn't matter. But it's been amended several times. Yeah, yes. Uh, But, but, okay, so, so... That is the, the first thing, death. That's the, the, those are the words coming from former CIA director John Brennan. When in fact, I believe he was, he's guilty and he's projecting, but, but. So, so let's look at the next one, rebellion or insurrection. Whoever incites, sets on foot, assists, or engages in any rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof, or gives aid or comfort Shall find shall be fined under this title or uh, imprisoned not more than ten years or both, and shall be incapable of holding any office under the United States. The next one, seditious conspiracy, and this gets in much more detail, and it talks about using the powers of government to destroy destroy and overthrow other forces of the government of the United States. So I think this one would be more applicable. But Greg, Greg Jarrett had some great responses to John Brennan's uh, allegations of treason. And again, the reason I brought that up, and this extends into the DNC server, the, the AP reporters who, yeah, really pinned him against the wall, pinned him against the wall. Folks, you want saying, a life, a lifetime example, or or a picture perfect example of what treason and sedition is? Look at the FBI, the DOJ, and the Hillary Clinton handling. Oh, look at Hillary Clinton. Yeah, yeah. Folks, right yeah, if you're listening to the Hagman Report. Stay with us. edition of the Hagman Report. Uh, we were talking during the break about the computer the, guy in Buffalo, uh, Dougie. What was his name? No, Your no. good friend made the computer. Not Skip. Skip. Didn't he call you Dougie? No, 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 no. He didn't call me that. He, could, he had another name, but he didn't call me that. No, no. Dougie. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, Greg Jarrett is one of the more, uh, bril- I think, one of the more brilliant legal minds. And of course, uh, he. he, he in response to what John Brennan said on Twitter, he said, whenever John Brennan opens his mouth or tweets, he removes all doubt about his ignorance. He clearly knows nothing about treason. The U.S. is not at war with Russia. And he notes that he should read Professor Carlton Larson's excellent analysis of treason. And there's a column in the Washington Post on uh, treason 
that that was published on February 17th of last year of 2017. And that really is, a, I don't want to say the golden standard for treason, but it, it's, a, it's a good analysis of treason. And Greg Jarrett, of course, has got a good handle. And by the way, uh, Greg Jarrett, I, I just want to say congratulations to, to Mr. Jarrett because he's gonna, he's got a book, The Russia Hoax, The Illicit Scheme to Clear Hillary Clinton and Frame Donald Trump. That's what it's all about. And that's why when, when you, when you look at folks, the, the DNC server scandal, the murder, of, in my view, the murder of Seth Rich, the, um, which is connected to the DNC scandal, in my view, the, um, WikiLeaks, uh, the, in their reporting about Seth Rich and the leaks, uh, the Mueller coverage, cover up, that is, of Uranium One under Hillary Clinton's Secretary of State when Mueller was the FBI agent. You take all of these issues. The Obama stand down order of intelligence there agencies you go. for Russian interference. Right. There are so, so many of these dots. And when you start like a child and you take a, you take a, you know, connect the dots and you start connecting the dots, a picture of Donald Trump doesn't come up. No. A picture of Hillary Clinton or Obama or Brennan or Comey or Mueller or just insert leftist here, basically. That's what comes up. Depends on what edition of the coloring book or connect the dot book you've got. And, uh, but, but, but the Russian hoax, that's what this is all about. So, Again, the theme of tonight's program is, what is the right going to do? Are, are we going to push back? Uh, what happens when the right starts pushing back, when the conservatives begin to push back? Yeah, that's not the hearings we see. That's something much different. Oh, the you know, will be. yeah. And, and uh, let me ask you this. What will it take, the rush, or what will it do, the rush directions? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 yeah, no, let's see. Yeah, that's going to be used as evidence against you and your against own. me, right? Yeah. yeah, it's it's oh, that's a Freudian slip. But, uh, I'm serious. I get these emails. Uh, but what will it take for the conservatives in this country, the, the true red-blooded patriot conservatives? How much are we going to take? And that's what Stuart Rhodes and, and Matt Bracken are going to be talking about. Yeah, and, and I, I love these two guys. I mean, Stuart Rhodes is just a fantastic legal. I mean, did you know he, he he's a brilliant legal yeah. mind? Yep. And, and Bracken, the, the decorated offer. Navy SEAL, yeah. yeah. But what you said, what was it going to take? I'll tell you this. As much as we see or have the appearance of chaos in this country right now, mainly due to the Hollywood political and me- media establishments, uh, things are getting better little by little. Yes, we still have a $20 oh, trillion sure. dollar deficit. But drop, uh, unemployment numbers are down, even though I don't trust those numbers. They're down to record lows, specifically among minority communities and, and women. We see more money in our paychecks through the tax breaks. The tariffs hurt a little bit, but they're, they're going to be bringing manufacturing jobs back. I said all that to say nothing has interrupted or, or, or taken away from an average American citizen's life. Money, I, I think the quality of life has right. risen over the last 594 days. You could, yeah, you could argue that, but I think the true measure of that will be seen for the next 5, 10, 15 years if we continue at this rate. But once those things start to happen, you know, once gas hits seven, eight dollars, I'd say once the world reserve currency is not the dollar anymore, or there's an economic crash. But that was, been, that's been planned out for, for, yep, watching decades. some, uh, old quotes of John Kerry this weekend from 2015, he said that in a quote. The U.S. dollar will no longer be the world's reserve currency in the near future. 
I, I don't remember where it, it was it, when he said it, but it was boy. from 2015. You can pull it up on YouTube and watch it. I've been seeing a lot of uh, a, a lot of activity in that in, uh, in on that subject. Random Twitter messages mm-hmm. talking about things like the Amero, which uh, yeah, okay, that were in that have been inserted and are being inserted in these threads that have nothing to do with this. The Amer- um, Amero was the proposed currency right. for the North American uh, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade uh, Agreement. Now, when we used to do PI work, when we're on the highway all the times, so we'd see these trucks. And they would be, uh, what was it? Red, K- white, and green. Yeah. And in the middle would be green. It would be, it's a U.S.M.E.X.C.A.N. representing United States, Mexico, and Canada. Now, when I went on that run to Ohio uh, last week or the week before, I saw one of those trucks on the highway, which was the first time in about 10 years that I saw one, but they're still out there. And I know that they still I, have got, those aspirations. We, we, I think we should pull out those photographs. Yeah. We do have some photographs of the truck. Yeah, I mean, it could be just a, a trucking company, but what it represents, of course, is this one. Yeah, this North international American system. Union. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, um, but, but so we are in the fight of our lives. I, I believe this, and I believe that this is the biggest story of our lifetimes i don't know yes it is and i wanted to ask you the indictment of the uh <laughs> what what happened uh with rosenstein did you read the now, indictments i did not but uh, one thing i didn't have to yeah. read them because i know i know beyond the shadow of a doubt that the, those uh the dnc and podesta emails were not hacked we right we mentioned that on Friday. right there's no way based on the the uh, transfer rate and also the right. geolocators and we know that wikileaks uh, dumped Vault 7, which showed that they could Correct. attack any other nation with cyber attacks and blame it on anybody that they wanted to. Misattribution. So, right. I, I did not read the indictments, but did, did you read them, and what was any compelling evidence of uh, their you know, conclusion? It, it, interesting question, and here's my, my view on this. It wasn't necessarily the indictments, although, because the indictments are toothless, you, you're not going to expect <laughs> extradition from Russia of of a dozen military assets. This was all for show. But here's where my concern exists, and my concern exists on the timing of those indictments. And and this was done, I, I really believe this was done in a, uh, uh, this was done to uh, kind of knock Donald Trump off, off of his game in an attempt to do that. That's the timing. This is, this is, um, uh, you're, you're looking at. Uh, uh, hang on. A Sorry about that. No, no, Cross talking here with Eric. We're having, I, I can hear voices. We're having Skype issues. Uh, neither Matt or Stuart are able to seem to whether it's oh, Skype right. our issue or their issue. Uh, they're not able to have a, a well, you know regular what? connection. Well, so let's, let's, let's do it by let's, phone. Yeah, let's do it by phone. And we've got Matt's uh, books, images, enemies, foreign and domestic, and of yeah, course Stuart Rhodes' we'll papers. Right yeah. So let's do it by phone. But but I think the timing speaks volumes. And anyone believing, of course, that, that Robert Mueller is working on behalf of Donald Trump secretly in this high-stakes or this uh, this really complex chess game, I think that yeah. this kind of blows that out of the water. I think the anecdotal evidence alone, uh, the, the uh, indirect evidence acting as, or circumstantial evidence, if you consider, as I've used before, think of, a, of a, like a, a nautical rope that consists of many strands. And each strands, each strand makes that rope stronger. And look at a strand as being circum, a strand, a piece of circum, the circumstantial evidence. So, 
it, the, the thicker the rope, the stronger it is. So there okay. it is. And, okay. Uh, real quick, just, uh, we're gonna have to do a lot more on the, uh, on this book, on what's in this book, because this literally is the blueprint of what we're watching play out. What's the, what's the name of the book? Uh, Autocracy, Totalitarianism, and, no, Totalitarianism, Dictatorship, and Autocracy. And that's by Zygmunt Brzezinski and, uh, back in the 50s. Uh, Frederick. I forget the guy's first name. Okay. But, yeah, and just I'll read you the contents here. Uh, introduction. Autocracy and the problem of the state. The general characteristics of a totalitarian dictatorship. Then it goes through the party. Uh, the nature and role of the party. The problem of succession. Then it goes to the ideology. The symbols and myths. Historical roots of the totalitarian systems. The change and corruption of ideology. The constitution, the law, and justice. Next chapter. Propaganda and the terror. Propaganda and the monopoly of mass communications. Education as an indoctrination and training uh, institution. The That's terror. laid out there. This, this is just the table of contents. Right. The terror and the passion for anonymity. The secret police and the people's enemies. Purges, confessions, camps. The directed economy. Totalitarian bureaucratization. Plans and planning. The battle for production and industrial expansion. Uh, labor, bond or free, agriculture. Then well, it gets interesting. New World Order uh, blueprint. You're the right. general problem of resistance. Okay. The general now problem of the, the family. Now that's what the we're general talking. problem of the churches. The uh, problems with the universities and uh, technicians. I guess I don't know what they mean by that. And the last chapter: totalitarian expansionism and the future. The military establishment. The political establishment. And the stages of development in the future. Now, I've worn this book out. <laughs> I can see that. Um, yeah, it actually had a cover when I got it. And uh, I think we've got $2 we paid for this up in Tupper Lake. But just a quick excerpt from the same chapter we read from earlier, Constitution, Law, and Justice. He goes on to, before this, explain uh, the difference between uh, what they call the laws of movement or an open interpretation of the Constitution, it being a living law much what Ruth Bader Ginsburg thinks of our Constitution. Two, uh, we have uh, autocratic legalism, however, must not be confused with the totalitarian distortion of the notion of law in what is spoken of the laws of movement. The totalitarian ideology tends to dissolve the normative in the existential realm and to consider all ordinary laws merely an expression of laws of nature and history. And it, really? and it goes on from there to talk about the uh, the structure that the legal order must provide and the standards by which it must hold itself to. But when those are broken down, and we have seen those being broken down right in front of our faces. So what you just what you just provided there from the table of contents forward to, to your last word there is, is essentially not just a blueprint, but but um, when you look at this, you've got this multifaceted attack on. On our country, on our nation, mm-hmm. from the schools, the indoctrination. Yep. There's from the re- re- revision of history to, well, to where it goes. And it talks about, uh, you know, after I read that last part about how the, to handle pushback, uh, ordinary laws merely being an expression of laws of nature and history, that all history is the history of class struggles and that the legal order must be structured, structured to provide a standard. Uh, which to measure positive laws, alter and break them. But then he goes on to say this. Um, and where is it here? Uh, let's see. He says that when you get to this part where you see the 
Constitution is basically now not uh, like the Bible is the foundation. It's the the doctrine. You don't right. change it. You don't reinterpret it. Well, now we're at a point in time, much like we've seen in Hitler, uh, in Hitler's Germany, and Stalin's Soviet Union, that regimes that maintained the legal system uh, that were not suitable for their own political person uh, purposes and aspirations, they can change those to a very considerable amount. And it says our Constitution is also subject to that same law, as long as the party, rather its leaders, the power wielders, do not wish to interfere with the totalitarian dictatorship's ideology. Right. And, and it goes that's on to talk about the Roman Empire. To understand too. Right. But it says that the re- the party leadership in communist China has uh, endeavored to restructure the social obligations. Okay. By selectively pressing certain useful habits drawn from the Lai Mao pattern. The basic meaning of the Li is thereby distorted. But what they're saying is they're reorganizing reorganizing society and societal norms, and with that comes a new whole host of societal issues, like what we would call today uh, the snowflakes, the transgenderism, the, uh, you know, the Which Antifa. Goes, the, i got to tell you, it go, that goes back to the John Adams quote. It's the uh, destruction uh, of our of our Constitution. Right. It's uh, Our Constitution is suitable only for a moral and godly population. Yep. And, and, and the, the attacks by the communists, present ones included, are the attacks on the family structure, are the family unit, are the attacks on the on and the indoctrination of our children? The, I, I had spoken of art one time. For example, I'm a really big fan of the Hudson River School. Um, our art, it's just gorgeous by the old masters. And you look at art today, and it's 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 been perverted. And somebody could take a soup can, paint a soup can, call it art. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, and that's, you know, it, it is so surreal. The totalitarian ideology greatly expands the area of penal and criminal law. It also talks about the subversion uh, and the broad interpretation of the national interest and the security of state. With their help, many legal uh, corpora- uh, conceptions, I'm sorry, are permitted, are perverted and at times turned into the opposite of their actual functions. And I'm mispronouncing words because I underline this stuff, but some of the underline goes right through the words. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, perverts their original intent. Matters well, that you in know, the constitutional systems are the subject of a suit between individuals become the concerns of the state and are permitted by the ideological concerns of the regime. So what they're saying is when you get to this point where you have judicial activism and judges making decisions and changing laws based on their own personal and ideological beliefs, the original state of law and order and traditions like there are constitution and government go out the window. And and hence well, here we are today. And this is why I believe this episode, folks, you're gonna have to really pay, pay close attention to, to the rest of the show. You've um you've got uh Matt Bracken, Enemies Foreign and Domestic, and you've got Stuart Rhodes, Oathkeepers.org. Okay. So you So you, yeah, let me get I, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt no, you. No, I got a lot of, feel free. I got a, a a river of thought flowing through my mind. Uh, maybe about a year ago, six months ago, I watched a documentary, and it was based only on a transcript from a meeting, a high-level meeting with Hitler and the Nazis before the end of the war. And this was... Uh, uh, I know what you're talking about. It was about the law, how they were going to define Jews and second and third and fourth generation Jews. Yep. And, and, and it, I'll, I'll say, to some it might sound boring, but when you understand 
how they use their own legal system by redefining words, they were able to basically, and and don't take this the wrong way, in their own laws, legally exterminate those people. Yeah. Through the redefinitions, through the perversions, subtle perversions over time. But what they did was, you know, you weren't considered Jewish if... Uh, you know, your mother was only half Jewish and your father wasn't Jewish. Wait, 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 wait a second, though. Wait a second. They got to a point where they look, said, look what they do with abortion. It's not a human being. It's a clump of cells. Right. Even at, at, at you know, 12 weeks or 20 weeks, yep. whatever. I'm sorry. But no, but, it's, but, but that's the same thing. Yeah. And where we, one of the great things about our system of government is that it did not, our constitution was not established to put limits or laws on the people. It was to restrain and put limits on the government. It's a bill of but limitations. We're now. Right. Throughout, throughout time, the institution of the Federal Reserve, the IRS, the Department of Education, on and on and on, have slowly chipped away and eroded at the sovereignty of our government. And, and by the way, connecting dots, Pruitt was under fire. This is, you've got to get rid of, of, um, the communists have to, have to certainly Maintain the status quo of certain agencies and get rid of others and, and then start other new agencies within our own government. It's, it's part of that process. So you might think, well, you know, man, that's kind of, why are they picking on Pruitt, for example, EPA? Well, they want to preserve the EPA. Just one example. Or what about the Department of Education? Got to, got, got to not just uh, preserve it, but to enhance it through Common Core. So again, this is a fight from all perspectives. In, in my closing quote, um, we're not taking time away from our guests, are we? They're just yeah. we're just having some difficulty. We're, folks, we're having issues bringing on Matt Bracken and uh, 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 Stuart Rhodes. But but the bottom line is, uh, we're looking at a fight that's that's generations or. More than yeah, generations old. Oh yeah, it's between good and evil, and involves all aspects of our society. And you know, the the, the biggest thing that that bothers me is not one of the even the best of the best cable shows <laughs> are, are given enough time to really get into the depth of the problem. Well, they it's, are like, but Law and Order, you know, they they will never. They always present the liberal. Well, you know, very liberal. Well, I'm talking about, I'm talking about like an hour of news. Yeah. Yeah. Like Sean Hannity, for example. Or, yeah. Michael Savage podcast, which is a three hour radio show. When I downloaded it's, uh, you know, 57 minutes or something like that. Get into the, the reasons why we're here. Have people understand not the revisionist history that has been forced upon us via Common Core or other means, but, but the, the, and study the books that will enhance your knowledge of why we're where we're at and what they're planning on doing. When I say they, we're talking about the communists, we're talking about the globalists, and and it's it's not limited to party either. George Bush, a, a huge globalist, uh, George H. W. Bush, uh, huge globalist. The the last real, I believe, the last real president that we had was Ronald Reagan, and before that. JFK, yeah, and, and 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 by the way, while we're while, while we're on before this, that, uh, who, who's the one before that? Uh, uh, Eisenhower, maybe. No, uh, yeah. Wow, no, then, no. Then you know, back. you you you. Re- <laughs> I got to tell you, when you read American Betrayal by Diana West, you'll learn a lot about Truman and about Eisenhower and about yeah. others. You know, it's just it, it, it's just. I don't know much about him except some of his speeches and in his later years, some of the decisions he made. Right. 
but, but um yeah so all of this combined but 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 again we have to look at this and, and that's why tonight's program uh, that's why we're looking at the entirety and what's going to happen when the when the conservatives when the right finally decides okay we've had enough and what's enough what's it going to take for us collectively now i'm not advocating the full disclaimer ahead of time neither us nor our guests are advocating any kind of violence and yes i can speak on behalf of our guests because i know both of them matt bracken enemies foreign and domestic.com and Stuart Rhodes, OathKeepers.org. They, they can feel free to correct me once they come on, but I know them and neither one of them would advocate, uh, violence, okay, in terms of, uh, uh, proactive violence. Defensive violence, yes, as well they should. One last comment sure. on this chapter. Again, we're reading from the same chapter. Is just to sum up what Zbigniew Brzezinski is saying that, uh, through these different governments and systems of governments, uh, this trial and error of trying to get their ideology, these, their totalitarian ideology through, whether through socialism, communism, fascism, whatever the ism is. It says this, and I find this really eye-opening. It says that it's the totalitarian limits were rather well stated by satellite ministers of justice, but the real task of those employed in the administration of justice to be realized of every word of party and government resolutions, but particularly the consideration of the social socialist legal structure and the modeling of our courts on the shining example of the courts of the Soviet Union. There, and, and that perhaps is one of the most relevant passages from that book. There it is right here. Bush appointed judge announces into national borders, suspends deportations, exceeding the authority, exceeding the mandate, and you've got all of these activist judges. This is why these judicial appointments are so important. Well, that's just one of the reasons why. But do you see how, how the erosion of our, of yeah. our nation, national liberties, the, the erosion of our Constitution is taking place in, in just that one passage? And, and it's amazing. Even the, And we'll get to Stuart right away. But it, reading this chapter, I get a much better understanding of where the mainstream media comes from. He says this in the very end of this chapter. Yet no tyrant or autocrat or that of a tyrant would endure long without providing a measure of believed-in justice. Modern totalitarianism has sought to facilitate its task by providing an ideological consensus that is manifested and symbolized in Constitution and law, as it has been traditionally in the Constitution, constitutional democracies of the West. So what they're saying here is you, it's not just a king who can put his foot down and, and exercise all power. You need the whole uh, consensus of the ideologically driven force behind you and your government to manifest these uh, symbols of a changing society. And that's the true definition of changing something from the inside out. A quote I often hear you talk about on a replay of a coast-to-coast commercial that uh, I just heard on the way to the studio today. You know, George, the real threat is not only the enemy outside of the, our nation, but more importantly, the enemy. infiltrators and the enemies that enemies are within. within. Yeah, exactly. And they play that all the time. Uh, yeah, it was a good quote. Yeah, good sound quote. It was a good quote. Now, Stuart Rhodes is with us, is my understanding. Oathkeepers.org. I've got to tell you, this one is out of the park. NEA, National Education Association. Um, NEA whistleblower. Teacher 
teachers' unions setting stage for a civil war. You know, when I, when I talked about this five years ago, people mocked, they ridiculed, they said, you're just... And I, I had a source in D.C. With, within the DHS saying they were pining for a civil war. They wanted yep. a civil war. 2015, I think? It was 2013. The, 2013. The, the first, I think the first one was 2013 or 2012. But it, it, but it was under different circumstances. Remember, the objective always remains the same. It's the tactics that, that change because of the uh, environment. But, folks, go to OathKeepers.org. Join. That's number one. Support this organization. Stuart Rhodes is one of the finest individuals I've, I've met, one of the most outstanding people I know. And uh, Joe and I spent some time with him in Canton or wherever that was, and somewhere in Ohio, Canton. But this latest article, NEA, National Education Association, setting the stage for a civil war. NEA, whistleblower, teachers union, setting the stage for a civil war. It's fantastic. Joe, well, yeah, let's, bring let's bring him on. The founder of Oath Keepers, uh, always on the front lines. And uh, it's, Stuart, it's great to have you on. We were talking about meeting you and getting to sit down and interview you uh, after that conference is over. We actually haven't played the interview yet, so... No, we are we're, going to we're be ramping up for that. Putting that together. We still also have some Red Pill Expo interviews as well, uh, so we can throw that into the mix. They're but coming. We have, uh, again, you on the show, and since the last time you have appeared, we have a president who continues to do the right thing for the American people, for the most part. We can argue about Kavanaugh and a few other things. And the media has gotten ten times worse uh, than just the last time we spoke. Um Leading up to the 2018 midterm elections, and while we're waiting for uh, Matt Bracken to come on, what's your, what's the consensus of you and the Oath Keepers of where this 2018 midterm election is going to go? Because it's either going to, we're either going to see the the blue socialist wave, or we're going to see the death of the Democratic Party. In my opinion. Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Just want to give a props to uh, Northwest Northwest Liberty News. Let me use their studio here in Montana. Um, we just had a discussion the other night, myself and some other board members on Oathkeeper's board of directors. We think that there's a very good chance the Democrats will be defeated precisely because they've gone so far left. They've gone, you know, you have the, uh, the entire movement now leaving the Democratic Party of people that are disgusted with how Marxist they've become. And so if they lose, I think you'll have a significant part of the radical left will think they have nothing to lose or, you know, no choice but to go uh, kinetic, to go full, you know, weather underground and start making, making, you know, proving out on their, on their threats of using violence. And we've already seen the precursors. We've seen, you know, rampant violence this last year by uh, Antifa and in other leftist groups like, you know, by any means necessary, an openly Maoist group in, in Berkeley. I mean, we were up against them multiple places around the country last year. I'm not sure if folks are aware of that. Um, but all of that was just kind of like window, I guess you could call it dress rehearsal for the open conflict. Um, but if they, Wait, if they I'm sorry, sir. What, what, what did you just say about people might not be aware of? Oh, well, last year, Oath Keepers, we went up against Antifa on the streets in Berkeley twice, in Portland, Oregon, and in Boston, and, and other events around the country, including guarding the... Uh, Anti-Sharia march by Act for America. So we've been up up close and personal with Antifa on the streets, and and they pretty much punk out and back down um, because they're afraid of our of our military veterans and our police. Our crops carry concealed under Leosa; they can carry all over the country. And I think Antifa realizes that. So anyway, the point is is that 
But you've seen where, we, where you don't have really good defense, you've seen people beaten in the streets, you know, women given concussions, hit in the head with poles, and, and people, people having their, their ribs kicked in by Antifa. Um, but when faced with actual veterans and retired cops, they tend to fold. That's been the pattern. But we think that if they lose the elections, there's a good chance that quite a few of them will think they have no other choice but to do violent revolution. Now, if they win, of course, it'll flip the other way. They'll, they'll wait, and they, they'll hope they can defeat Trump and regain the presidency. So that's kind of the wild card, is, is which way will the election go? If, if they lose, I think it's going to be all bets off. You'll wind up with at least an element within the left uh, going full full kinetic, full weather underground. Um, if they uh, win, then I think they'll just try to run the clock out on Trump with the goal of putting another another Hillary or someone like her in the White House um, in twenty in twenty twenty. Now the the danger there, of course, is that people on the right will look at this and and they'll see you know more illegals being brought in in the sanctuary states like California and sanctuary cities like Tucson, et cetera, and allowed to vote, and they won't accept the election either in twenty twenty and possibly even the midterms. So we're in a situation now where neither side really trusts the political process anymore. Um, and whichever way it goes, you're going to have one side feeling that they have nothing to lose or no choice but to potentially um, resist and not seeing the election as legitimate. I think that scale is tipping more towards the left being that way, and I think that's a very good chance they will, they will suffer losses because of the way they've behaved. They've become so yes. anti-American and so openly, you know, Marxist flying the communist flag, the hammer and sickle, and, and beating people in the streets and opposing free speech and, you know, and hounding um, Republican lawmakers and, and uh, administration personnel. You know, Maxine Waters screeching, you know, form a gang or form, form a crowd and make sure they know they're not welcome here. This kind of, this kind of uh, totalitarian uh, intolerance is starting to truly really grate on the average American. And it's the same exact reason why they lost the election um, when Trump was elected. It's because people are sick and tired of the Republican Party um, basically becoming the, the party of, of, of communism. So, you know, the whole walk away yeah. movement, I think, is a good indicator. So I'm hoping they're defeated. But I think we need to be ready for um, civil disturbances and even open terrorism if they, if they are. And, Stuart, you made some great points. Now, uh, I'm going to go through these one by one first. <clears throat> Antifa. Uh, it so something that struck me since we saw after the President Trump election was that they were raging. They were all over the place, you know, shutting down uh, events where people were speaking uh, as, as bad as the KKK rally in Charlottesville was. You know, they were, they were, they were, there they were uh, on cue showing up to, to create violence. But then it died down, almost like somebody stopped cutting the checks because it wasn't working and they needed a rebrand, a regroup. And then we see the illegal immigrant children, the whole dust up from that. It seems like anywhere they can get an emotional rise out of people, uh, they'll, they'll try to throw that Antifa stuff back in there. But you're, you said something so important, which is the left, and we've been talking about this for a long time now, is an, an identity crisis of uh, like never before. They have no new ideas, or good ideas for that matter. They have no pro-American policies. They have no leadership. And the infrastructure is just this, you know, socialist hive mind. And uh, all they want to do is redistribute other people's money. So well, they, if they, they abandon the working class, and it's, yeah. like Michael Moore said, this is the one time I agree with Michael Moore, as he said in advance of the election, that if Trump wins, he called it the Molotov cocktail vote. 
where you had working class guys who, you know, grew up working for GM and General Motors and, and you know, in the Rust Belt, who are out of work, generations of unemployed Americans who are, and, and they're going to turn on the establishment. And he was right. That's exactly what happened. Is the Democrat Party has abandoned the working class and has gone pure um, identity politics, racial identity politics, and that's where they went, trying to you know hang their hat on uh, demonizing this country as being inherently racist and and only cultivating you know tribalistic groups of, of uh, ethnic minorities, and that's where they went. That's why they lost, and now they're doubling down. That's why we posted this this uh, whistleblower's report about the NEA. You know, they have this new plank, a new uh, resolution called White Supremacy Culture, where they say the National Education Association believes that in order to achieve racial and social justice, educators must acknowledge the existence of white supremacy culture as a primary root cause of institutional racism, structural racism, and white privilege. And they go down the list of, of you know, all the, all the, the canards they always lay out there about, uh, you know, white privilege and, and what must be done to erase it. And I asked this this, this uh, whistleblower, what are they talking about? What, what do they really mean? And the response was, it's pretty much everything that's American. Our Constitution, our way of life, our laws, the very concepts of inalienable rights, of individual liberty, all of these things are inherently racist. And really what this is, is just the latest Marxist attack on capitalism. You know, the Marxists believe that, you know, capitalism, all those constructs, the Bill of Rights itself, the, you know, limitations on government power, all of those are merely uh, capitalist constructs to solidify capitalist power. That's what they said when they were trying to appeal to the working class. But now they're trying to, to appeal to non-whites as, as, racial, as oppressed racial minorities. They've, they've changed their tact, and now it's like, well, everything in our culture is inherently racist. Not that it's inherently capitalist and it's evil. It's inherently racist, and therefore it's evil. It's the same idea. It's really just a warmed-over version of Marxism that's being, being um, laid on our students and being indoctrinated and brainwashed. The sad thing is, is I just recently had an occasion to be in an event with local people here who were, you know, self-described progressives, and I listened to them talk, and they believe it. They drink the Kool-Aid. They believe that Trump is racist, that all his supporters are racist, that anybody who wants to seal the border is a racist, that, you know, poor children are being put in cages. They don't understand that, that you know, ICE was actually preventing child trafficking from happening by separating children from people who were not their parents, who are masquerading as their parents, to bring them north to be, you know, the child sex slaves of pedophiles. That's what happens in this country. They're brought north, and they're, they're brought here for pedophiles. So, but, but they don't listen to any of that. They don't listen to the, you know, the nuanced truth somewhere in the middle or the reality on the border that the cartels are raping people, raping women and children, and, and you know, abusing them and, and even killing them out in the desert. They don't care about any of that. They don't want to hear it. All they want to know is that, you know, anybody who's not them is a racist. And I think if there's a civil war in this country, a lot of these young college students, even high school students, are being brainwashed. They will probably die believing that they're fighting Nazis when all they're really fighting is just average Americans who are sick and tired of being force-fed Marxism. And that's what they're not going to understand, is we're not racist, we're just Americans, but they'll go to their death believing they're fighting and, and, and they're being killed by a Nazi. <laughs> you know? You're, you're so that's, exactly that's right. We're headed. And you, you covered a lot of ground uh, from the educational system, um, and, and I've been reading from this Brzezinski book, but it, it mentions this, that, you know, under this, new, under this system, that they will change, uh, te the teachers and pupils alike will continually... Uh, uh, propagate the totalitarian parties 
uh, uh, talking points. But it says something more important, especially when it comes to the propaganda and the monopoly of mass communications. It says that terror and propaganda are directly related, one influencing the other equally. Terror may be crude and subtle. It may be the work with the threat of execution or with a defamation of the social shame. Its chief characteristic is the deliberate effort to intimidate. Governmental terror seeks to frighten those under its sway into into conformity and obedience. It therefore may create a measure of consensus and willing cooperation. That's exactly what we see today. But it also goes on to talk about when those aims, when those measures fail. Terror is the inevitable outcome or consequence of the rulers' resolve to uphold their own ideology, not the people's uh, rationality. And that's exactly what we're seeing today. We're, we're coming to that stage, which Brzezinski defines as about 1935 Germany, when the liquidation of the open of uh, open and secret resistance in any organization or form starts and i would say with the uh, harassing of, of republicans for their political beliefs and eating out at restaurants that is the end of the subtle stage and the beginning of the open attempts at liquidation or at least uh, opposition to the point of drowning them out i mean this is we're here and they have what else can they do in their playbook that will help their cause other, other than destabilize this country, there's nothing they can do to regain power. Legitimately. Well, they they can they can continue to, to well, not legitimately. You're right, not legitimately, but they can continue to flood us with people from the third world. You know, and just just to make sure everyone's clear on this, my relatives came from Mexico, but they came here legally. You know, two generations ago, my great grandfather uh, came here with my great grandmother, um, but they assimilated and became Americans and adopted the American creed. And you know, here I am. So it's not that I'm opposed to brown people coming here. I want them to assimilate. And with the left, of course, because they've, they've bought into or they've adopted the strategy of turning everyone who's not white into a Marxist and, and conditioning them to believe that anybody who is, is, is white is their enemy, um, I don't want people coming here who are not going to assimilate. And so I oppose. I think it should be an absolute moratorium on any further immigration, especially, you know, of course, obviously illegal immigration. And I think President right. Trump, you know, last last month I called for him to put the put the troops on the border, and I think Matt Bracken said the same thing. He should. That's the one thing he's not doing enough of. He has the capacity right now as Commander-in-Chief under Article 2 and the duty and obligation to go ahead and just deploy the U.S. military on the border uh, to repel this invasion and to secure our borders against, I mean, it's open military warfare right now against the cartels. That Border Patrol officer who was shot, I believe it was last June 11th, um, yep. Was was you know ambushed basically by what they call a uh, what do they call them? They call them um, was that the John Land uh, property that that happened on? No, it was the it was the uh, property of the Chittums, I believe their name is. Okay. Uh, I don't have my computer up in front of me. Yeah. But he was yeah. he, he was hit by what they, he was hit by a, a team of, of of other cartel people who go out there and raid. I forgot what they're called, but they raid cartel shipments of drugs, and they'll go in and raid them. Uh, it was a diversionary tactic, I think, right? Is what you're Pardon? referencing. It is some uh, type of no, diversion. I think he just ran into, oh, they call them rip crews. That's what they call them. Okay, all right. Yeah, they call them rip crews. It's, it's a crew of, of, it's like a squad-sized element of guys with AKs who go and they raid other cartel drug shipments. They're like pirates. And, he, and the suspicion is he's ran into a rip crew. We're not really sure. That's the guess, because he was hit with multiple rifle rounds, and luckily he was wearing uh, rifle plate armor. Um, yeah. And but the point is, it's a war zone down there. And, 
you know, the president should go ahead and deploy the U.S. military, Marine Corps, and Army, and, and that should be, you know, a combination of two Border Patrol officers escorted by a squad of Marines or Army to go out there and do their jobs. That's what he should do. He should just put a stop to it once and for all. You know, and, and, and what he should he, do is say, look, this is not just a matter of national security, which it certainly is, um, and stopping the drug flow and, and stopping the you know, incursion of terrorists, et cetera. It's also the humanitarian thing to do, and that's to stop the, the flow of women and children that are being brought north to be sex slaves. And that's very well documented. They're forced into prostitution, brought north by the, court, by the cartels, and forced to work off their passage by becoming prostitutes, and it's women and children. So and let's Trump look at, has an opportunity to do this. I don't know why he's not doing it. You're right, and I don't know that we that we're there yet, but we're very close. But you made a, an important distinction. The immigration issue has changed over the last hundred years, where we hear constantly on the news that we are a land of immigrants. We're always taking in everybody. But one of the things that's different from immigration a hundred years ago is that uh, people came here to assimilate, as you said, into societies to get jobs. Uh, to, to, to help build the roads and the infrastructure of this country. And they came here legally. Now, what we're dealing with today. Right. What we're dealing with today is people who want to circumvent the law, even stepping over and on the toes of those trying to come here legally. And they're being given a, a bullhorn by the media as though they're some kind of victims. And that any opposition to illegal immigration is equal to racism in the eyes of these uh, communists, which is conflating the issue so badly. Uh, and we could talk hours about this, but yeah, ver you know, people wanted to be, in, in former times, they wanted to come here and make a better life for themselves, assimilate and become Americans. Now, they want to come here to enjoy the, f the, the, the fruits of the labor of the Americans and, are exp and, and at the same time, not only want equal rights, but special rights while they do it. And the media is propping that up. That's why they're called migrants. They don't, they don't even call them immigrants anymore, legal or illegal. They just call them migrants because in their worldview, they don't respect nation states. They don't want nation states. So they just want to have the, the United States be destroyed and replaced with, uh, I guess, the North American Union, as you were talking about earlier. You know, that's what they want to see as a regional system of, of government where people can just migrate back and forth. And we saw this. This is not just Democrats doing this. We saw this during the Bush years, right? So you have that big map that's supposedly a security barrier all, about, all around North America. It was going to be the common border. And inside, there wouldn't be any, any barrier to travel between Canada, Mexico, and the United States. That was proposed by the neocons in the Bush administration. So, you have know, you, have you seen that? The Mexican, uh, the candidate who's favored to win the presidency in Mexico talk about uh, his strong talk. And first, one of his first goals is to basically build a wall on Mexico's southern border. At the same time, these are the same people that, you know, call Trump and his supporters and those who are uh, proponents of border security uh, racist. But go on, Stuart, I'm sorry. No, that's, that's exactly the thing is that, you know, what's good for the goose is not good for the gander as far as they're concerned. But, uh, you know, and he, the, the, the socialists in Mexico are in line with the socialists in the United States, and they want the same thing. You know, it is, it is the Reconquista. That's exactly what it is, and Matt Bracken's right about that. So I think the big danger for us, though, is that they want us to divide along racial lines, and they want all whites to think that all non-whites are their enemies and vice versa, and we need to make sure we don't fall for that. Um, the criteria should be ideological are you are you a communist? Then you're an enemy of the United States, enemy, enemy of our constitution, enemy of our nation. 
Um, as long as you believe in Western culture, the Constitution, and want to preserve individual liberty in this country, you should be welcome in our camp. And that means we make you know very clear about that and very very strong about it. So I think that the, the great danger though is that because of the identity politics the left has adopted, the racial identity politics, they're going to force more people who are white to do the same thing, and you're going to wind up with this what they want, an outcome that they actually want. Those pulling the strings is to have uh, American whites become overtly racially orientated, and they can say, "See, we told you they were Nazis," and then we yep. all have a big, huge, massive civil war along racial lines. Um, and don't forget, you could have outside intervention. You know, who knows what the communist Chinese might do if, if called upon by the, you know, by Moonbeam there in California. You know, who, who can say? So um, we need to make sure that's that we chilling. don't fall into the same trap. So that's why, you know, I openly condemn the national socialists who are also hate the Constitution on the far right, if you want to call them. I think they belong on, on the left because they're collectivist. And, they, of course, they hate my guts and hate Oath Keepers because we don't let them, you know, come play with us in the streets. We, we don't need them. So and and that's why. Yeah, and, and, folks, this is why it's so important to be part of Oath Keepers. I, I don't mean, uh, Stuart, to keep hammering this, but if you're not a member of Oath Keepers, Man, I'll tell you what, you need to support Oath Keepers because Oath Keepers, it's a nonpartisan association. It's their oh, oath. It's partisan towards the Constitution. Well, right. The, the oath mandated by Article 6 of the Constitution itself is to the Constitution, not to the politicians. So, so please, as we enter into this area that, that, uh, is uncharted in my view, uh, in this country, yeah, yeah in, in, in this country, we're going to need uh, to rely upon and to support Oath Keepers. So please go to oathkeepers.org and, and become a member, become a supporter, because right down the road, I'm telling you, it's, it's not far. I have a feeling that we're going to be fighting, uh, as you said, Mr. Rhodes, uh, you know, it's, it's not looking good, especially if they lose this November. What do they have left to lose? And, and the racism part, Stuart, the, the, what we see on the news is is a manufactured crisis. I don't know. I asked this question just only a few times, but to our our audience, how many times in in each and every one of your guys' daily lives do you run into issues of racism? I'm not even talking about some guy maybe at work making a, a, a racist joke at the water cooler. I'm talking about actual instances where uh, you know bad things are happening, services denied, whatever the case may be, based on skin color or a difference in ethnicity. I, I've, I've, I can't or, or is this hyperbole? It, I mean, it happens here and there, but the national media will take those here and theres and turn them into uh, this is the normal, this is the everyday, and this is how how uh, uh, this country's been and, and how it always will be, when that's just not the case. I, and again, I can't tell you the last time in a public, private, or anywhere other setting where somebody was being racist uh, to someone else's face or behind their back. I, I don't know. It's not a problem like they make it out to be. If if this country were so overwhelmingly racist, then we wouldn't care about being called a racist. It's because we're not that 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 even works on people. You know what I mean? The pejorative of, of your your racist is is effective only because we're not. It's right. kind of hilarious. But but that's the thing is, is the left really has no other no other ploy. They abandoned the working class, like I said. You know, back in 1972 in the Weather Underground's Prairie Fire Manual, they overtly adopted identity, identity politics as their way of going forward. And they've been pushing that ever since. That's all they've got. So they have nothing else. There's no other game for them other than declaring that Western civilization is inherently racist and then trying to swamp us with the third world. And then if you oppose it, 
because they're not assimilating, whether it's Europe with the Muslims or here with uh, Hispanic coming from, from South and Central America and Mexico, um, they, they label you racist. If you want to preserve your country and, and bring people in in a slow enough and, and you know, small enough numbers to actually assimilate, they consider that racist. No matter what you do, they're going to call you a racist. So I think it's just time for us to stop worrying about that and just lock the border up with troops and put an end to it. And the next thing we have to do is ensure clean elections that only citizens can vote. So I'd be in favor of federal election mandates that you show, you know, that you prove your citizenship before you can vote. I think that's necessary, frankly. I mean, you need a driver's license to go into just about any building in New York City. You'd think that it's common sense that you'd have them to, to be able to vote, but now that's not even an issue because in certain states, if you have a license, that's equal to the right to vote. But let me ask you this, Stuart, because you make right. a good point. So the country uh, doesn't fall for this manufactured, you know, uh, hysteria of racism. And the people are still unified. Or life goes other, on, or any other issue, right? And life goes on. Uh, therefore, there's no crisis. What does that leave? Does sure. that leave them the the you know well, a nine eleven or economic? We got to create our own uh, well, half, because they didn't the fall country, for it. Here's the problem. I mean, you can, I wouldn't say half the country, but a large portion of the politically active people in this country, half of those who are politically active believe it. They believe they're drinking the Kool-Aid. They believe that the other half, all of us people on the in the red states, are racist. They believe it. I mean, you could go talk to them. Just go to some leftist-type meeting in a coffee house or something and just sit and listen. They truly believe that all Trump supporters are racist. They've been indoctrinated yeah. and brainwashed, and they're useful idiots for the, for the radical Marxists. That's what they are. And they're nice people. A lot of them are actually nice people. They could be your local baker, you know, whatever, but they've been indoctrinated by the Democratic Party and by the left to believe that everybody who's a Trump supporter is ipso facto a racist. And so, you know, it's not working on us. It's kind of the gun issue. I think it was Daniel Greenfield had a really good article uh, about a week ago where he talked about this. He said, on guns, half the country believes that there's nothing wrong with firearms. We grew up with them as part of our culture, as part of our life. We see them as necessary tools for self-preservation. Then you have the other half who believes that, that firearms are, are evil. They're never going to reconcile. I mean, unless they unless they change their mind about the the evilness of firearms, they're never going to never going to change their minds. But they also can't prohibit us having firearms. It's not like child molestation where everyone can agree it's wrong and there needs to be laws against it. It's it's something that there's a, there's a split. That's an ideological split. And that's just not going to go away. That's where we're at. They they want to look at us and label us, you know, maniacs and, and you know, gun-toting racists, and we look at them and go, you're an idiot, and we're not going to change for you. And so what do you do then? You're at an impasse. And you're can, right. Can, can we stay? Okay, so if if I'm hearing you correctly, we're in a boatload of trouble right now, which, by the way, increases your stock value, the stock value of Oath Keepers. And the reason I bring this up is because we need people who are adherent to the to the Constitution. Specifically, we need police officers and, and the, the office holders adherent to the Constitution. So, exactly, because these attacks are not about racism. They're not about social equality. They're not about uh, whatever right. the issue of the day is. They're about changing the laws of this country to turn it into an international or globalist uh, Call me yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So, if I'm hearing you correctly, we're, we're in a boatload of trouble here coming up, or we could be seeing some trouble on the horizon far beyond what we've seen to date, which is troublesome. It's possible, and I think there's there's several things we should be doing between now and then. 
I think it's important to go out and talk to people. And like our New York crew just recently went to the NYU to protest last week and protested against a professor there who had doxed the, uh, you know, information about, about ICE employees. And because they were standing on the sidewalk outside of NYU, they talked to students, they talked to people who were walking down the street, and they actually had some pretty good conversations with them to start, you know, bridging that gap and making them realize that not everybody who's on the so-called right is a, is a crazy racist. And so, you know, we have retired cops and military veterans standing there talking to them. And uh, I think that's what you have to do. you got to get out there and, and be willing to go and talk to the students on a college campus. You really need to. Um, you might not be able to get through all the propaganda and brainwashing they've been subjected to, but you need to try. I think that's incredibly important. And, and the other thing we have to do is stand up in, this, in, in our communities and make sure that we come together, you know, the retired military and police, the guys with the skill sets, we've got to step up and, pro- and provide security in our community so that we don't have a false choice of Antifa terrorism running in the streets um, or a clampdown and, and a police state. We have to make sure that we provide our own security locally. That's what's necessary. That's exactly right. And local is where it starts. It's the most important, yet it's the least focused on where you can affect the most change locally than state than federally, but we don't, we, we do it backwards, you know, it's a popularity contest of the president. And, uh, you know, one of the, I just want to say this on, I, I know a family that I've known for almost my whole life, a friend of mine, his parents, and his, his grandparents came here from Mexico, uh, legally. Now, these are very smart, very successful people. And th- what you just described, I mean, they buy into it hook, line, and, line, and sinker, where I talked to them for the first time in maybe four years, a few weekends ago and we had this discussion now we have been lifelong friends so they didn't tear my eyes out but the look on their face (laughs) said as much and these are very smart people and that concerns me when I see that kind of thing yeah, but they're, they're buying into the propaganda. Hey, is Matt Bracken coming on or are you guys not able to get a hold of him? He's MIA right now Um, we've been attempting to uh uh, he knew about the interview. I'm not sure what happened, uh, Mr. Rhodes. Uh, we do apologize. Maybe we can ask uh, Peter to come on early if he wants to. Well, that's, um, if, uh, y- yeah, we, we fully expected him. He was on schedule. We're not sure exactly what happened. Uh, but by the way, folks, we're talking about Matt Bracken, his website, enemiesforeignanddomestic.com. And it was going to be a roundtable discussion about, uh, uh, about where we're headed, as we're discussing right now. But I'll tell you what, Mr. Rhodes is holding his own. And, of course, our guest, if you're just joining us, Stuart Rhodes, OathKeepers.org. That's OathKeepers.org. And a lot of content, by the way, on that website that you've got to read. And, Stuart, to continue this conversation, one of the uh, ace up the sleeves of the globalist is this technological revolution and how that's going to change our society in ways that might actually take the power out of the Constitution, out of the choice of the individual, without any vote or uh, concession by them. And I know we're not at that point yet, but they're moving uh, with AI, with these robots, with the... I mean, I don't know how uh, up you are on what's happened in Cuba with the sound weapons and now in China. I think there's over 250 cases now where U.S. personnel have been... Uh, injured or have permanent brain damage due to these sound weapons. We know they have microwave weapons, the drones, on and on and on and on. This warfare is going to change the landscape of battle, which will change the landscape of power. It's not going to be how many soldiers you have or how many jets or tanks. 
It's going to be how much damage you're able to do from a remote location, like you're playing a video game. So, well, people said that about the about the, the drones back in the you know the beginning of the the war on terror, um, and yet it didn't pan out that way. I, I don't think I don't think technology ha- is the uh, catch-all or the, or the the great great hammer that people think it is. You still have to put people boots on the ground, as Matt would confirm, to occupy a place or or to control people. You just, you just can't do that. Um, from the sky, you just can't do it. Can't be done. So I'm not that worried about that. I mean, yes, those, those are things that could, could concern you, but but um, as the Afghans showed us, and as we've seen other places in the world, uh, technology does not do it. You got to put boots on the ground. And so I, um, I agree, especially it, right now I mean, with a military. I mean, other factor, if you're going to have a civil war, who the commander in chief is matters, right? If you're going to have an actual knockdown drag out between the communists and, and the people on the right in this country, if it happens during the Trump administration, we would, I think it'd be a, a pretty easy victory for the right, unless we had foreign intervention, because the great majority of the people in the U.S. military, um, would see the president as legitimate, unless he completely turned on us, which I don't think he would. I think, uh, I think we'd prevail pretty quickly. Um, it could be a huge mess. Yes, they could, they could, they could collapse our economy as one way to, to screw with us, an EMP could happen, things like that. It's all as well as wild, wild cards, black swans, as they call them. Um, but it matters who the president is. And right now, I think that they'd be in a, in a pretty bad position um, with the U.S. military looking to the president as legitimate and following his orders to suppress their insurrection. So right along with all of us veterans. So I think they'd be pretty screwed. Um, if you know, loses, and then, then put a Democrat in office, it could be the exact opposite. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, I, which, which goes to an article, um, on your website about, uh, the Mueller indictment of, tw- of 12 Russians and, and the show, the sideshow that we're seeing with, with the Mueller investigation. Um, the, uh, just the divisiveness in this country and, and, and the, um, just, just a ripping down or the rending of our, of our, of our, uh, of this country by, in, in so many facets. So many different uh, ways, but um, by the way, Stuart, we just got word that apparently um, Mr. Bracken's not able to come on. So I'm going to extend the invitation to you. You can, um, um, we can reschedule, or we, we can just continue just having a discussion for as long as you want up until uh, the top of the hour. It's up to you. It's I'm fine. It's up to you. Can you call it? Oh yeah, I'd love to. We'd love to just keep picking your brain on on the various issues at hand. So. Um, I'll, I'll tell you what. Why don't we do this? Why don't we turn I'll turn the floor over to you, in terms of whatever you had prepared mentally. I know you wanted to bounce some things off of of Matt Bracken, the author of Enemies Foreign and Domestic. But um, what, what are we looking? at? I mean, I, we covered a lot of ground already. But what's what's most troubling to you right now in this toxic mix of? horror well, that we're seeing domestically. It's the the intentional division of the American people and the conditioning of large segments of our population to be closed-minded and, and hate each other. And it really bothers me quite a bit. Like I said, I think it's important for us to, in our local communities, you've got to get out and talk to people. Even if you disagree with them, you've got to you know, connect with them eye to eye and try to break through the propaganda. And you might not be successful. It might be a complete failure, but I think it's, in, it's imperative that you try. 
Um, we saw this last year during disaster relief. We did, you know, in Houston, Texas, and then in Florida, and then in Puerto Rico, we did we did disaster relief in the wake of the hurricanes. And after a hurricane, no one cares whether you're a Democrat or Republican. No one cares. They're just they're just average people trying to get by. And I think that's the truth for the great majority of Americans. But the problem is, is that on the left in this country, you know, they've got a monopoly. The Marxists have taken over the, the colleges. They've taken over the, the teachers' unions, which is why we posted we posted today about that. Um, they, they've taken over the infrastructure. They've done the long march, you know, as, as has been said, through the institutions. And that's the problem. And so that they control the media for the most part. They control the educational system. And so they're brainwashing these high school students and, and college students to believe that anybody who advocates for the Constitution, for the very very basic ideas of individual liberty, that they're racist, that they're crazy, you know, right-wing fascist racist who must be suppressed. Um, and they believe it. And so they're being conditioned this way. And unless you get out there and show them by your personal example and your personal interaction that's false, then, like I said, they'll go to their they'll go to their death thinking that. And so we have hmm. to break through. It's imperative that we get on the college campuses and talk to them face to face. We have to. Uh, at the same yeah. time, though, I think we have to also look at if we can't do that, we can't put all eggs in that one basket. If we're not successful in, in deprogramming these brainwashed kids, um, we need to prepare for the worst, which is they go, like I said earlier, full weather underground and start. You know, what if, imagine what would happen if. God forbid, Antifa or some other leftist group like that were to go and kill the entire family of an ICE agent or wipe out a Trump supporter's family and, and oh. make it very clear that they did that just because of who they were, if they were an ICE agent or they were a Trump supporter. Um, that could be, and after that, it'd be open, open season on Antifa, I think. I think you'd have military veterans, retired cops just hunting them down and killing them. So, oh, it would. You know. Like the the uh, DEA death in the 70s, uh, when one of the DEA agents was tortured, and the U.S. government went after those cartels with a vengeance, which started a policy but, but, to but, leave them alone. But what Stewart's talking about is is, is a more of a grassroots response, not the government response. I, yes, I, uh, right, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if that were to happen, I think that'd be the catalyst for for uh, or, or or imagine if the cartels on the border. Um, decided to go and just start wiping out Border Patrol agents. And, you know, and we hope that doesn't happen, but there's a very distinct possibility that it could, you know. And if that were to happen, I think Trump would react by, by locking the border up with troops. I think he would. But uh, if Antifa went crazy, I think there would be a reaction from the U.S. government, um, but I also think there would be a reaction from the veterans and retired cops. It'd be, you know, of course, then they would be labeled right-wing death squads, right? So you, you go out there and you hunt down Antifa, who are terrorists, and uh, you start whacking them. And then they'll call you a right-wing death squad. And, and like I said, they'll go to their grave believing they're fighting Nazis and right-wing fascists. And we're just people trying to defend, you know, defend our country against communists. So here we go. Mm. You know, we, I hope this, I hope we can find a way out of this that, that it doesn't involve that kind of violence. But the, the indoctrination, I've never seen it like this. When I went through law school, you know, back in 2004, I graduated from Yale Law School. There was a left and right divide, but it wasn't anything like what we're seeing now. This is just so incredibly uh, toxic and, and cancerous, this, this conditioning to hate the United States, to hate their own country, and to label anybody who doesn't, who's not a Marxist, to label them racist. And, um, and, it, and it bleeds right down to our local, local high schools. The kids are being indoctrinated to believe that this country is a racist nation. 
that it's an, everything about it's racist, and that if you if you believe in free enterprise, you're racist, that that's somehow racist. So you know, this is where we're at, and unless we could find a way out of it, I think we're going to have a civil war. And what we have to do then is to say, okay, if we can't figure out a way to de-escalate and deprogram these kids, what then? And I think the answer to that is, is we have to be ready to prevail. And that means that those of us, you call them the, the American warrior class, the military, police, first responders, the gun owners, the constitutionalists, have got to start coming together and making sure that we are ready to keep the peace. And that's the way I would put it, is they're going to be dealing with a, basically a communist insurrection against the Constitution and, a, and a, you know, an insurgency. And how do you put that down in a way that's as legal as you can and constitutional and also that it is effective, but also doesn't go too far and, and become, you know, what they are. We don't want to turn into totalitarians either. And I think the answer is the U.S. militia, right? The militia of the several okay. states should be revitalized, but we don't have one. I think uh, a good way to go in between is what the back in the Founders' Day they were called training bands, where patriots get together and train, and they were a pool of trained and ready people that could be used as the militia. I think we need the same thing now. Call them training groups, whatever you want to call them, but I think it's imperative that we come together and start training and forming into these pools of people that can be used um, by our local sheriff, if he's a good sheriff, as his posse, by the governor uh, as a state militia, um, if we have a good governor, like in Texas, or by the President of the United States, if he calls us up as the militia of the several states to go to the border, for example, and secure the border, or to execute the laws of the Union, like the laws against terrorism, for example. So I think it's, it's, we should be doing this in our local states, in our states, in our local communities, is coming together and making sure that we know each other, those of us who have the skill sets, and also this general gun owners, uh, unite the warrior class and come together in training groups and get, start getting ready. That's what we should be doing, I think. And, and, and folks, that, in part, this is where OathKeepers.org comes in. This is why we need to support them through membership, support them through word of mouth, but support OathKeepers.org. What do and, we always talk about? This is, is a missing? public service announcement, really. I mean, what do we, always t- we always talk about what is missing in our movement, if you will, and that is organization. Mm-hmm. And this is an opportunity is. to become part of an organization that is willing to come together and uphold uh, the laws of the land, no matter what the situation or conflicts are. Yeah, uh, Stuart, uh, I've got, I've just handed about a dozen emails since you've been on, and you had referenced you going up against Antifa. Um, the collective nature of this question, or these 12 emails, or 11 emails here, let me just ask you this on behalf of the listeners listening right now. The question is, where do you think the police, whether it be in Portland, Miami, Los Angeles, Kansas City, where would they fall into a situation that you described that, let's say it's all out, just, you know, brass knuckles, you know, balls to the wall, excuse me, my expression, but where would the police fall? Would they be on, on, on our side, your side? I mean... Uh, it, it depends on right where, it depends on where you're at. <clears throat> I think you look at the recent ICE arrest in uh, up in Portland, where you had the you know, leftists blocking the driveway when ICE van was trying to leave. I don't know if you saw that video, but yeah. one of them they're screaming profanity at the at the ICE agents. 
And one of them says, I'm going to laugh on your graves. You know, he, they're, so they're, they're winning, they're winning hearts and minds pretty badly when it comes to the police. I think, I think the rank and file cops in this country hate Antifa because they know exactly what they are and they know that they, they hate police and they're going to kill cops if they can. So I think when it comes to, you know, as far as, you know, the hearts and minds go, they're on our side. Um, the problem might be though, if they're in a place that's absolutely dominated by the left, they might just keep their heads down and, and go along because of their pensions. And that's a risk we see in New Jersey, for example, with state police in New Jersey. I think it's, you know, pretty fair to say they're going to do whatever they're told when it comes to enforcing like the red flag law they have now in New Jersey. That's a pretty draconian, uh, latest, latest intrusion on the right to bear arms where they can have anybody, you know, accuse you of an ex parte, go to a judge without you being present and accuse you of threatening them with a gun or displaying a gun in the wrong way or whatever. Um, and then the judge has all this big, long, laundry list of criteria of what he can use, this mere allegations, to put an order out to go and confiscate your guns. This is in New Jersey right now. And our, our consensus on this is that they'll do it. They'll, if they're given these orders, they'll go do it because their pensions are at stake. So I think, but, but that's not in a full-blown civil war. I think in a full-blown civil war, they see the right, you know, people on the political right, military veterans and retired cops going out there and, and, you know, taking care of business. I think a lot of the police will just step back and watch and wait to see who wins. It's, it's very likely what will happen. But I'll bet privately a lot of them will be cheering for, for the right because they know we don't hate cops by and large and, and don't want to, to harm them and their families. Uh, the left, though, they know exactly what they're going to get. They're going to get the ditch. They're going to get the mass murder in the ditch if the left prevails, and they know it. So, you know, and you might see cops, as we've seen around the world, off-duty, they come and help, you know. So, mm-hmm. And, of course, they'll be called right-wing death squads and, and labeled, you know, fascist murderers by the left, And but there you go. But I think quite a few of them will, will side with us um, unless they're in a, in a place that's absolutely dominated by the left. And then... then it, then there's going to be a military decision right there, like in New Jersey. What will happen? Will the, will outside patriots go to the to the aid of, of patriots in New Jersey and uh, tip the tide on their favor or not? That's another good question, right? Yeah, and Stuart, I, let, let's uh, talk about this a little bit more because Antifa, uh, it's just a, a general term for well, quote unquote the resistance. But there are a no, lot of people anti, who anti-fascist is what they yeah call, yeah they call it, right. But there's a lot of people who will resist and who will uh, agree with some of their, their sentiments that will never go to a protest, will never, uh, you know, take action. And then we see these people who are, you know, the quote-unquote Antifa, the masks uh, at the colleges, universities, uh, creating problems. And and we have heard a lot of speculation about people getting paid to do those type of protests uh, from the Soros and otherwise. My question to you is, how much of this Antifa movement is organic? And I know it has to be pretty substantial due to the amount of propaganda versus how much is, is uh, you know, bought and paid for. And before you answer that question, I just want to toss this in. I was handed another half a dozen, well, actually to be exact, seven emails when you had referenced 2004 graduating from Yale Law School. It wasn't like this 14 years. Why the change? So you've got basically the same question asked a little bit differently or two different questions on parallel courses your answer well i think i think the marxists have become more blatant more open about what they really want and it's because they they feel then they felt like they had a lock on the, the presidency they thought obama was going to be the beginning of, of a perpetual uh, lock on political power they really believe that and they came out of the woodwork 
Um, you know, but then he lost, and, and then now they're freaking out. And they're starting to go back to, it's kind of back during the 70s, right? During the 60s and 70s. They start to think, well, we have to spark a violent revolution. It's the only way to stop this wave of, I guess they call them reactionary, you know, right-wing wave, right? So to stop us from taking back our country through the electoral process, they might feel they have no choice but to use force and violence. And that's, you know, a lot of these kids grew up with Obama. You know, eight years of Obama, so their entire life, practically, as far as their, their aware political life, has been with with Obama as president. And all of a sudden, and they, and they think Hillary's going to win next. You know, they had their first black man, now they had their first woman. And in their world, this is how, this is the, the march of progress towards a progressive um, utopia. And then, bam, Trump wins. And now they're thrown into a lurch. And in their head, it's like, the, you know, the, the sky's falling now. You know, this right-wing, reactionary, racist, fascist and all his racist, fascist followers, you know, have, have now taken over the executive branch, and they they're in emergency mode. They think they have you know no choice but to but to resist in the streets. You know, they go right back to Marx's you know playbooks of mass resistance, and they try to get this you know like a like they did in the Middle East, right? What they call it, the Green Revolutions. That's what they're trying to do here, and it hasn't worked so far. But you know, eventually, some element on the left is going to go full weather underground. That's what they did. The SDS, out of the SDS came the Weather Underground when they, when they believed they had to go all the way to violence to get their way. And they were delusional. It didn't, didn't work. But I think you're going to see the same, same kind of thing happen here. That's probably what, what's going to be going on. You know, and, and radical totalitarians, they can't help themselves. They, they believe that their way of life or their, their chosen utopia or their chosen system is the one true way. And they're like religious zealots. You know, Marxism is a form of religion for them. It's it's their version of of Allah and Islam. You know, they they believe that this is the only way to live, and anybody who doesn't believe this is a heretic and, and an enemy of the people, and and needs to be exterminated. And so they're just you know coming true with their own the true colors. Wow. Okay. All right. But and by the way, rules for radicals. Um, never been more relevant, at least in my view. Uh, as a template or as a kind of a, an instruction manual for what we're seeing today. You know, I, do you feel that way or am, am I just a well, little bit behind I think, the I think they're going beyond that because, because I believe Alinsky's strategy was to take over the system yeah. and to, to manipulate the system. And, and here we're seeing they'll do that if they can, but if they can't, like if they lose in November, then they might just go right back to the Lenin playbook or, you know, or, oh, or pull yeah. Or Just mouth. destroy it then. Right, destroy, exactly. That's what exactly this NEA insider, that's what he believes is going to happen. If they're just going to go right to pure destroy. That, that's By the way, that was now. brilliant. That, that was a, um, whoever, well, your NEA insider, that, that was, folks, if you haven't gone to oathkeepers.org, uh, bookmark oathkeepers.org, you got to read that, that article, um, from the NEA whistleblower. Teachers' union setting a stage for a civil war, and that's a, that's a chilling piece. Especially, and, and think where that came from: the National Education Association. And of course, yeah, we know about that. But my goodness, to, to read that in print. Mm-hmm. And Saul Alinsky, yeah. one of his famous quotes that ties right into what you said is: "Power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have." And then he goes on to say, "A racially integrated community." is a chronological term timed from existence of the first black family to the exit of the last white family. And how true 
are those words being propagated from every mainstream source today? 22 on that article, white supremacy culture. So, um, Well, I mean, they're speaking it that way. That's yeah. mean, It's just sick about it is, is that rather than teaching people, you know, as, as Martin Luther King said, to judge a person by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin, they're doing the exact opposite. They're becoming the racist. And so they're dividing people along racial lines and, and teaching them to hate each other. They really are. The conditioning... Um, non-white to look at every white person as intrinsically racist, intrinsically evil, and there's nothing they can do, and they, they can they can never satisfy them, as far as saying they're not. And then it also conditioning white people to see the, the inverse that everyone who's not white is my enemy. So they're actually dividing this country. You know, of course, of course you both know that. I'm preaching to the choir. Sure. Yeah. They're dividing us along racial lines, you know, dr- drastically. But the sick thing is, is, is quite a few of them have drunk the Kool-Aid so badly they can't even see their own racism. They can't see it. Their own anti-white hatred and racism. They can't see it. <laughs> it's it's surreal uh, to be certain. Again, Stuart Rhodes, OathKeepers.org. Uh, we met this gentleman uh, in person and lengthy conversations with him in the green room. Uh, as a matter of fact, they're, they're right on your screen if you're watching. Uh, there's uh, Joe, myself, and uh, Mr. Rhodes there. Uh, Seems like a lifetime ago. Oh, man. But I'll tell you what, the information that was passed along to us. We only have about seven minutes left. I can't believe how quickly time has flown. Um, in, in the remaining seven minutes, Mr. Rhodes, let's, let, let's say, okay, the bottom falls out and we, we, the worst of the scenarios. What do you recommend people do or or if you don't want to address that or if you have something more pressing in the final moments here in the final minutes go wherever well, you want to go well I think it's imperative that we go back to the basics you, you've got to have food you've got to have fuel um, I know a, a person here in Montana has a food supply company that is doing badly because of the Trump slump everyone thinks because Trump won they don't need survival food anymore or preparedness food that's extremely upside down. Um, this is the time when you need to be organizing, when you have less fear of your federal government because you got a conservative in, in the White House, is when you should be reaching out, less fear of the FBI, for example, is you should be reaching out and organizing and getting your community prepared. You need you need neighborhood watches with teeth as a ground zero. You need a town watch. You need a, a pool of people that are trained that can be the sheriff's posse, and all of you need food and fuel those are, you know, of course, medicine, et cetera, and radios and all the things you're going to need to communicate. But uh, food, it's hard to improvise. Either you got food in your belly or you don't. So if you don't have food stored away, and it could be mass bulk, wheat food, you can go down to the Mormon cannery, you know, whatever you want to do, but you got to get it squared away. And I would I would recommend at least a year, if not two years, for every family. And you got to have community food, too. You know, wheat's pretty cheap. Rice and beans are pretty cheap. Just go start stocking it away so that you can feed the people in your community who are, you know, who you need to take care of. You're right. And, and as you said, we community. Need we need to care. And the security is a big one. you got to have community. you got to have security. And so I, I really do believe we need these training groups, and I think we're going we're gonna to probably help do that. We'll help train them. But, you know, you don't have to be an oath keeper to be in a training group. Just go form a damn group. Form a group in your neighborhood. Form a neighborhood watch, a church security team. Um, and then you're in your own town. Come together with your gun owners. Go out to the range and start shooting and get to know each other and start training, you know. Absolutely. Small All the tactics. supplies in the world aren't going to save you if you don't have that infrastructure, uh, as, as you just said, the community uh, there to, to, to work hand-in-hand hand with you. And we can't do this alone. We need our, our faith. We need our neighbors. We need our friends. 
and we even need people we might consider enemies right now who will wake up when, when it might be too we late. Can convert them, yeah. you know, at, at some level, as you had said. Well, I, I've got to tell you, I, I know that this was a sacrifice of your time, but we so appreciate it. I know that we've got a lot of people listening. As a matter of fact, uh, uh, I just was handed a note here. Pretty much the entire, all 50 states are represented in uh, several foreign countries listening to this interview. Um, in, in the, in the waning four minutes left, you gonna be, are you, do you have anything, any events coming up that you, we, we should know about? Um, any online things that we need to know about? Well, we're putting together, uh, potentially in, in late August, a series of rallies. They'll be all on the same day. Um, you gotta pick a date still, but I think tentatively it's August 25th, but we need to finalize that. And that'll be the point of those, not just to come together, and, you know, and wave flags, but to come together and say, okay, here's what we expect the president to do. Here's what we expect all of our candidates for office to commit to like respecting our right to bear arms. Here's what it takes to secure our schools, secure our border. Um, then also, the big part of it is to come together in each state and get to know each other. Those of us who are patriots, who are constitutionalists, come together, um, and this could be a way to start those training groups I was talking about. You know, why not use it as a catalyst for that? Come together, meet face-to-face, and go back to your area of the state with, with other people um, who you've met and talked to and start training. You know, keep it, of course, above board and legal, but start training and and how to do everything that needs to be done for security for the for the community. And it's a huge, it's a huge, you know, task. Start You're right. Start with school summertime when it's still good weather. It's much more than uh, storing food and buying, uh, you know, guns and and preps. There are there's so much that I mean we've we've grown into a, a culture of convenience due to the way we live versus how we've lived 150 years ago throughout the beginning of history. And that has worked to our disadvantage, especially when things go wrong. So we need to at least have an understanding of the landscape and what needs to be done. And that organization starts at a local level. And Oath Keepers, a great organization, can be part of that. So be part of Oath Keepers. I know we are here. I don't know if we are officially yet. Dad, you've been saying you're going to do it. You even talked to me off air about it, basically saying the paperwork was in the in the hopper or it was already done. It's in the hopper. It's in the hopper. Okay. But, uh, we're doing so, so. Um, yeah, because, as a matter of fact, uh, multiple uh, people, as my, well, you know Jack. I spoke with him day before yesterday, which had been Saturday. And uh, he's, he's wants to be involved in that as well, so, in, 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 the, in the group. We're, we're forming a group here as well, uh, Stuart, um, because we, we can see the writing on the wall. And I, I want to stress that, you know, you don't have to be an oath keeper to start a neighborhood watch. So don't think that I'm trying to just use this for as a recruiting tool. Um, certainly our guys will step up and train people. We could use your help if you're trained especially. If you want to join and get trained, you're more than welcome. But just, you know, the first thing you should do right now is go start a neighborhood watch and get in shape. The other thing, man, you got to be in shape. You have to. Just yesterday oh, yeah. I had and kettlebells, and I've gotten myself back in shape. And every one of you out there, there's no substitute for being in shape. If you're not in shape, you're screwed. You got to get in well, shape. What was that second thing? Pardon? Well, you said that you did two things. The cattle what? I did. I did uh, hill sprints. I sprinted up and down a pretty steep hill yesterday, and then I did kettlebells. Those are those big kettlebells. cannonballs with handles. Yeah, I just worked oh, myself okay. out pretty good. I'm just saying as an example, you know. But get back yep. in shape, guys. You, you got to be able to run. Um, you got to be able to run and carry your own weight, and you got to be able to sprint from position to position. 
It's, it's you know, it's anaerobic. Everyone that's been in the military knows. Go back to your basic training. you got to be able to do those those hard sprints and be able to carry your own weight. So get on it, guys. Good, solid, practical advice. Stuart Rhodes, we're at the top of the hour, minus a little bit of housekeeping at the end, but I just want to say thank you for your gracious gift of time, as always. You, you right, never you fail to disappoint. Brother, thank you so very much. <laughs> and uh, Man, I'll tell you what, uh, enjoy the hills of Montana, and we'll be talking soon. All right, God bless you guys. Take care. God bless you. Folks, that was Stuart Rhodes from Oath Keepers, and, and I, I cannot stress enough how much we need to support his group. And the reason I say his group is, you know, well, look at what they stand for. Look at their charter. Look at who's involved. And when you when you speak with Stuart, Eric, can you throw that picture back up on the screen? Oh. Under the Tea Party, when the Tea Party movement exploded, it seemed like, uh, you know, in every crack of uh, anywhere in the in America, were these organizations coming out defending freedom, defending liberty, uh, organizing, and that fizzled out. Yeah, but well, Oath Keepers has yeah. maintained their position. They've continued to grow, where a lot of other people have lost interest, and uh, you know this is is, is something that is going to be there uh, for good. You know, until this country is gone. So. Uh, we, as we see many come and go, Oath Keepers is, uh, like the Hagman Report, we're here to stay. Boy, is that, is that <laughs> ever true? I, you know, when you said we're here to stay, we have no choice, do we? No. There is no other alternative. We can talk with Peter about that because, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, what do, do you that. do? As we talked about earlier in, in last week's show, uh, you either die, uh, fighting to protect and preserve this country and this this constitution, or you die because you didn't, or you move. Maybe I don't know. That's the third option. I, guess. I, I don't think there's anywhere to move to. Right? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah, a, a, gr- a great segment with Stuart Rhodes. Looking forward to Peter Barry Chalka coming up. Folks, you're listening to the Hagman Report uh, right here, Global Star Radio Network, BTR, and YouTube. By the way, Doug Hagman Radio Show, nine to ten. Joe and John, two to three. Folks, network break. Back with Peter. back to this Monday edition of the Hagman Report on our third and final hour of this show. Each Monday in the third hour, we bring on a friend and a special guest of the show, Peter Barry Chowka. He's an investigative journalist. He's an author, and he has uh, reported on and lived through things like Watergate, and we find ourselves often talking about the uh, similarities, but also the polar opposites of these investigations we see today versus the ones he was a part of. I'm amazed Watergate. at his eidetic memory. Okay. Yeah. I, I could be, for this, true story. Okay. Talking to him. Saying, you know, um, for example, talking about Watergate hearings. And he said, oh yeah, that was like Tuesday, August 14th, 1972. This happened. And I, I was doing this and this and this. I'm thinking, I, well, I can't remember what I had for breakfast. And, and he's out. So that's the caliber of guests that, that, that we so appreciate. And that's the caliber of writing that you'll get when you read Peter Barry Chalk's articles. I don't care where they appear. They could appear on 
it doesn't matter. It's not where they appear. It's the content of the articles. Follow Peter Schauke, at Pete Schauke on Twitter. Hey, if you're a cat lover, personally, I'm a dog guy, okay? Uh, but, uh, you gotta admit, it's, it's, it's a good backdrop for Peter with respect to his cats. But, uh, I was just looking at the monitor, you know, it's, it was a sunny weekend and, uh, uh, I, I don't know, wow, got some sun this weekend, so I feel, feel pretty, pretty good after that. But Peter's been making some, uh, yeah, some, he, some, uh, some waves, waves in the media world. He, ha- Michael Savage has been re- retweeting and picking up his pieces. Eric Bowling has also retweeted and, and been in contact with Peter. I believe in contact with Peter. Uh, I hope I'm not speaking out of turn there. But, uh, he's been doing some great work. I had to plug the iPad in, so I got it here on my lap. There's a bunch of pieces that Peter has written, uh, since last Thursday, I believe. They're all worth reading. Go, go to HagmanReport.com and bookmark the site. And check out Peter's, he's got his own segment right on the right-hand side. And you can also find his segments for the show. We isolate them on YouTube, uh, cut them out of the, the whole between show. Between the lines. Yeah, between the lines. And uh, it, it's a very popular and growing piece and a, a staple of the show. Peter. As a matter of fact, you know, i got to tell you this. In fact, Eric and, and Joe, neither one of you know this. Uh, today in the office, my wife and I were going through some uh, mail and some, some communications and, and my wife looked at me and she said, my goodness, Peter is, he's a popular guy. He's got a fan club. And, and, and she, then and she said, who's Lulu? <laughs> and I said, well, why? And she said, well, there's something here addressed to Lulu. So. Actually, it was a, it was a communication. It's, it's kind of funny. I, I have yet to send it to Peter. So, he, so like all the cats at the Humane Society follow him on Twitter? Um, I'm pretty sure. I, I'm, I'm just waiting to see the, uh, Biggie and Lulu, their, uh, uh their, uh, their own Twitter feeds. So. And we do have, we, we got them. Peter, it's great to have you back. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Doug. Uh, yes, I think we're moving towards the point where Lulu and Biggie will have their own Twitter soon, and I believe that both of those cats are visible off to my right on the day bed enjoying their catnip. See, that's the life, uh, isn't it? I, I mean, that's the life. There they are. Oh, ma- many times during the day, I think uh, what it would be like to be a cat in a supportive household with humans that you have trained and they take care of your every need. It would be. It could. It could be a lot worse. I'll tell you what. A little catnip here and there. You know, whatever they put in, whatever they make into that, and uh, a bed and four paws up, and there you go. Well, it does there sound good, are. Peter, but it also sounds like a nursing home or a prison too, <laughs> where you know. <laughs> nah. But no, I know the love they get is uh, unlike anything else. Are your cats like mine? Do they always find the pockets where the sun is shining through windows and, and just lay there and until, until the sun moves enough and that until they're not laying in the sun anymore, then they go find another, another spot? Yes, and for that reason, they actually prefer the winter because in the winter, the sun comes uh, almost directly in the windows and casts a very long, bright space of sunlight. So they, uh, they probably enjoy that season because all seasons are the same to them because they don't go outdoors. So it's a controlled, temperature-controlled environment, and uh, they're pretty happy. They've told me so many times. Yeah, I bet you they have. Well, well, Peter, um, 
with all the waves that you've caused, with all of the articles you've written, with all of the inroads that you've made, where do we start today? Because I know that you haven't prepared for this, right? You just well, you know, here's what happened. I, as usual, I prepared. I, I think a lot about these programs, date, starting days in advance. Yeah. And I had an outline, and as usual, about five or six pages of single-spaced type notes. And then um, I got up this morning and happened to be up very early watching the press conference with President Trump and uh, his Russian counterpart, Mr. Putin. And I was so taken aback by that that I thought, well, the notes aren't going to do it because we're probably going to wind up talking at least a bit about that. So I, I couldn't, I couldn't even talk about that this morning. You know, I because I would have gone off the rails more than usual. But well, in that uh, same line, I thought Peter. It was very interesting the timing the day after Peter Strauch humiliated himself on Capitol Hill. Week after the week after, and then and. It, at the run-up to this meeting, and the media played it off like they believed that the president should cancel the meeting with Putin because of the news that they broke. Uh, what, what do you think, if you had to guess, the truth of the matter is? Was it a little bit of both? Uh, was it intended to take uh, focus off Trump? Was it intended to uh, discourage the president meeting Putin? Um, what do you think happened there? Well, not only the Strzok testimony last Thursday, which was uh, future shock territory in itself, if you happen to watch some or all of that, as I did. Then the next day, uh, Rosenstein uh, announcing the uh, indictments of 12 or more Russians in uh, that investigation, which seemed very unusually timed, literally on almost on the eve of the summit uh, meeting there, so casting a shadow on that. And that lent uh, credence to the Democrats and the leftists and the media's calls for Trump to cancel the summit, and then when he didn't, they were lying and wait for him, of course, although I, I have to say that, um, I mean, obviously, no matter what came out of the summit today and what how Trump described it in his press conference, he would have been a target for his many enemies. But watching it live and and reviewing all of the commentary since then, which is almost uniformly negative, including among many Trump supporters and stalwart Republicans, I think he really handed his enemies a loaded pistol uh, with a laser sight on it that they could aim at him politically. I think his uh, his explanation, I mean, there, there are two things that went on. Obviously, there was the, the one-on-one meeting between uh, Putin and Trump lasting two hours and ten minutes, and we have no idea really what went down in that. We may learn tidbits as time goes on, but uh, we assume and we hope that President Trump represented himself and United States interests very well. And I think that's a, that's a reasonable assumption. Then he had the joint press conference over a course of 40 minutes. And uh, I think he did very, very poorly. He uh, His off-the-cuff spontaneous remarks are often perfect for a political rally, and that's where they really work. But in this case, uh, I think he really inelegantly uh, answered the questions and uh, went off on tangents that he should have known were going to be seized on by the international media in this case. I mean, summits like the one in North Korea five weeks ago tonight 
command an incredible amount of worldwide attention. They're basically on the front page of newspapers in every country around the world and, of course, all over the Internet in many languages. And he just set himself up. And I, I don't, I didn't detect that the, the, the media questions were as negative as they usually are, for example, at White House briefings. Those are, they're pretty straightforward questions. And uh, I think he gave his, his opponents uh, a lot of ammunition. And we saw the result. Just about everybody immediately after the press conference started tweeting, commenting, bashing him. And in many cases, just quoting his own words. I mean, his concentration on uh, the DNC server and on uh, crooked Hillary Clinton, while justified issues, I don't think were appropriate for that setting. I think he should have taken it much more seriously and tried to avoid uh, getting himself in a situation where he could be positioned as Putin's lapdog, which is what happened. And uh, we'll see what happens now. It's, it's obviously impossible to bri- predict uh, what the uh, outcome of this today will be, if it's going to have legs, as they say, or if it will go away and another issue will come up in a couple of days to uh, that his enemies will put forward. But uh, I was really disappointed. And, I, you know, sometimes when I look at uh, Donald Trump and how he expressed himself, decades ago, two, three decades ago, because he's always given a lot of interviews and a lot of them are online and there are documentary films. And I, I think he actually was more articulate when he was younger. And what to attribute that to now, I don't know. But uh, I really think he's got to be a bit more cautious in the future. And hopefully this won't be a, uh, a killer blow. But uh, I was noticing on, um, I think it was Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News, he had on Stephen Cohen, the uh, Russian expert who is a uh, professor emeritus at Princeton University and who actually has defended President Trump and said that he's not a pawn of Russia, that he's really just trying to make peace between these two superpowers because Russia and the United States do control 90% of the world's nuclear weapons. So... It would be nice to be friends and not enemies with Russia, whatever that takes. And, um, of course, he was defending Trump today. He defended Trump. Uh, Rand Paul defended Trump in a tweet and in a very combative interview on uh, CNN with Wolf Blitzer and also uh, and also in an interview on uh, Neil Cavuto's show on Fox. And I heard a bit of Michael Savage's show today. And I was surprised that he defended President Trump because you can never tell with Michael Savage. Uh, he's a contrarian by nature, but uh, yeah, he was... I can see it on this one, Peter, though, yeah. Well, well, he was positioning Trump as the peacemaker, and I think he's also in a better frame of mind about President Trump because he got to spend some time with him in the Oval Office with uh, Mrs. Savage in April, and uh, he's posted a lot of comments and pictures about that, so he's pretty high on President Trump right now, but... Almost everybody else, including somebody like Newt Gingrich. Now you could say, well, it's Newt Gingrich. But Newt has been a pretty consistent supporter of Trump and has written one or more books about President Trump that have been bestsellers favorable to Trump. So uh, he, he's got some work to do to dig himself out from under this uh, cloud. But we'll, we will see what happens. But, you know, I was thinking um, 
about summit meetings, and, and Professor Cohen mentioned this too, but the first summit I actually remember as a news junkie going way back was the 1961 summer summit, the first meeting of uh, new President John F. Kennedy and uh, Russian or Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev in Vienna, I believe. And uh, the reports on that were that Khrushchev got the better of JFK, that JFK was not at his best, and he was also not well physically at that point. And the way, reason I thought about that is uh, once a summit or any major news event like that gets kind of tagged with something, like in that case, the 1961 summit, you know, bad for JFK. And despite JFK's sterling reputation uh, since his assassination, I mean, he's pretty well regarded by both the public and scholars at this point for being uh, one of our better presidents, notwithstanding the evidence in some cases. But he's got a good reputation. But whenever that summit is referred to, the 1961 summit, it's always described in shorthand as not one of JFK's finer moments. And I can foresee with Donald Trump, uh, of course, the academics of the future will probably find many uh, bad moments for Donald Trump if we live that long to see it. But I'm sure that this one is going to be forever regarded as uh, one of his worst moments. In fact, a number of analysts today commented that this was the absolute low point of his presidency. And if you look at the media and the talking heads, you know, they're always saying that he's hitting a low point. But really, uh, I I don't necessarily agree with that wholesale, of course, because, you know, it's another case of total hypocrisy, too, because we know... Off the top of our heads, we could compare notes right now about the previous regime of Barack Hussein Obama and all of the things that he did, which were orders of magnitude worse than anything President Trump could have done or did do today with Putin. Uh, you know, Benghazi, uh, the uh, immolation of Libya and Syria the uh, constant lying about Obamacare and, uh, oh, his, his apology tours. You know, I, I thought it was really ironic today with Democrats claiming that President Trump didn't stand up for America as he went abroad and he <laughs> he was not patriotic. And I, well, where oh. were they during the eight years of Obama, especially right from the outset? I remember specifically early June of 2009, when Obama went to the Middle East and gave one of his most obnoxious apology tour speeches to at Cairo University, and I think sitting in the front row were members of the Muslim Brotherhood, who within a year and a half or so would take over the country because of the uh, finagling we did with their uh, political system to get rid of Hosni Mubarak, our friend for 30 years, and install the Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, what Obama's regime did in spending, I believe it was hundreds of thousands of dollars of State Department funds, government funds, to try to adversely affect the chances of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu being reelected in Israel. That's never mentioned. And then if you want to take it farther back, in 1953, the CIA uh, coup against Mohammad Mossadegh in Iran in um, 1973, the CIA assisted coup in Chile, which unseated the elected socialist president, 
Salvador Allende. I, I actually worked on a 90-minute radio documentary on the first anniversary of that, which aired on September 11th, uh, 1974. It was the first anniversary of the Chilean coup. And the United States was up to its eyeballs in that event, a, a very violent event in which Salvador Allende was murdered in the Moneda Palace. So, uh, you know, Trump is right by saying that there's a lot of blame on both sides. Again, he could have, in my opinion, done it more elegantly so as not to open himself up totally to this kind of attack. But you have to assume that 95% of the media, the talking heads, and even many rhinos and so-called Republicans are going to be on his case and are going to ignore history, including the recent history of the Obama regime. So we all have to be on our guard and make sure that we're absolutely factual, accurate, and tell the story in a way that it, it, it can be uh, understood by not only Americans, but the world without opening yourself immediately to attack. And, and you're right, Peter, and I uh, apologize because I did not get a chance to watch the summit, but I've been trying to catch up doing some reading here on some of the different complaints. But one thing that's interesting that I have not been able to find is really any uh, good talking points about what was said that's so disparaging. And you mentioned, was it you said MSNBC called President Trump out for a lack of patriotism? Uh, actually, I, I believe I, I didn't watch MSNBC today. Okay. I, I was comparing CNN with Fox. And by the way, Fox News, uh, for much of the time, you could have been confused and thought you were on CNN. They were also really giving President Trump a hard time. But many of these Democrats were coming out and, and saying that Trump was going abroad and not supporting the United States, not being patriotic. He was dumping on the uh, intelligence community here. And uh, in fact, the uh, director of national in- intelligence whose name is escaping me at the moment, issued a Biden. statement. The uh, James no, Trump? the current okay. one. The current one. Um, former congressman, I think. I might, you know, how I feel today, let me just take a moment to say that when I tore up or cast aside my five pages of notes and having taken in everything I've taken in not only today, but the last seven days, both in terms of the news and what's been happening with my so-called career in the last week, uh, I felt like not that I'm an athlete, but I felt like the long-distance runner who'd been training for a marathon, doing test runs, psychologically preparing, physically preparing, then doing the race, and what he or she must feel like at the end of that 26-plus-mile race. In other words, totally burned out and barely able to find you know, where to put your next step. So that's how I was feeling today, and... Um, I forget exactly who said this now, but there were so many Democrat politicians who were being interviewed and commenting and their tweets being read. And more than one of them was saying that uh, President Trump was not being patriotic. But again, uh, we know President Trump and his history as president and before. And uh, we don't have to vouch for his patriotism. That goes without saying. You're right. So, you're you know, right. This is, but, but again, we're dealing with, as your previous guest said, we're dealing with a brainwashed, low information, uh, citizenry now, citizenry, residents, I should say, 40 million of whom might be illegal aliens, by the way. A little statistic I turned up in my research this last week. So we've got a lot of folks in this country now that, uh, 
are just completely susceptible to the propaganda that has now reached uh, a level we've never seen before in the history of the world. So it's no wonder that uh, that the critics can get away with these lies and dissemination and and uh, smears. Whereas, you know, when I mean they were all on Obama's team, and he literally got away with murder, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and you know that's one of the. I'm I'm now finding some of the uh, criticism. CNN did a piece today. Trump is no longer the leader of the free world. MSNBC's uh, who was this? Uh, I'm not sure who this journalist was, but says that she's nauseous after the summit. Orders GOP mass resignations. And you know, a commenter just real quick says, was she nauseous when Obama said he would be flexible with Russia? Nauseous when Hillary did the reset button? Nauseous when Obama uh, went back on his commitment to put missile, missile shields on Poland and the Czech Republic. A nauseous when Obama called off the cyber investigation. Nauseous when Hillary and Obama led by the Russians to buy the uranium. On and on and on. Not, to not defend Ukraine, not the red line in Syria, not turn over the DNC servers. Basically listing uh, all the different uh, scandals that they were involved in. But it wouldn't matter, Peter. And, I, and this is what I love and respect about President Trump. He is who he is. He doesn't pretend to be somebody he's not. And whether that's in Russia or in New York City in front of Trump Tower, that's the kind of person he is. And if he was the most presidential statesman in the history of the world today, we would just be reading different criticisms of why he's the worst person in the world. Absolutely. Although I, I would advise anyone in the audience, and uh, you as well, Joe, you said you didn't have a chance to watch uh, the 40-minute press conference. I, I think it's worth taking a look at and, and see what you think of it. I mean, certainly people can have different opinions on it. I, maybe it was because it was very early in the morning for me and I'd had about two or three hours sleep, so I was a little irritated to begin with. But I, I, I thought it was not up to what he is capable of doing. And it could be just jet lag. It could be exhaustion. It could, who knows? I mean, he's really been pushing himself in in recent weeks and months. So, you know, I'm... I mean, he's he's still the number one guy in my book. I'm not going to bail. But I think uh, all of us who support him are going to have even more work to do now because I don't think the immediate outlook is going to be good. We'll see where it goes from there. Well, but, no, it's not. They're calling for his impeachment, the Wolf uh, Blitzer. Uh, shocking. Yes. Trump's barrage could warrant impeachment. And what I find so funny about this is, as you just said, this is not going to bode well for him in the media. He might need some support. I think the media gives him all the support and credibility in the world. I was always told to judge a man by his enemies, not solely by that, but that's a good place to start. And when you see the enemies of the American people criticizing him for what he does or how many scoops of ice cream he has, when you see McCain uh, calling him, you know, the most unpresidential person after that speech today, that tells me all I need to know. He probably was on the right side and, and said the right things. Well, that's an excellent point, you know, uh you're known by your enemies, so he's still flying over the target. He's getting the flack, and uh, and you know he was trying to achieve peace, which is what he was doing five weeks ago in North Korea. He got a lot of criticism for that too, although I think he acquitted himself a lot better on that stage. And it, this is a stage set, after all. This is a a media world we're dealing with, and it's the impressions and the perceptions that count and not even what really happened. Sometimes it will take years for the history to tell us what happened in reality, if even then. One, so, one question, Peter, know, if I, and sorry for interrupting. Mm -hmm. I don't want to forget this. Putin, uh, the Putin was quoted 
as saying something along the lines last week or the week before that President Trump doesn't really hold power. It's men in black suits who carry briefcases who hold the real power. Did, did you, are you remember him saying that? Did you hear I that? I did not see that okay. quote, but that, that's interesting. But I didn't know if that you came know, up today. Putin gave a, a, an exclusive interview to Chris Wallace at Fox News, which uh, aired at uh, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, I believe I have the transcript of that that Fox News sent me. I'll try to post that. And uh, also, President Trump was interviewed by Sean Hannity for his program, which is airing right now. And I have the transcript of that, which I'll try to post, because there's value in these transcripts. But um, I'd like to move on from there because rather than get bogged down, because we'll be hearing so much about this story, I'm sure, in the days ahead. But just review quickly the last week and, and how... Uh, Personally, for me, this was probably the most uh, intense week of my so-called career in a really long time. In fact, going back uh, easily a decade or more. And I mentioned uh, one week ago tonight that I was working with the possibility of becoming a contributor to a, a publication that was new for me, but that would be a major step up. And that did happen to work out. So I'll mention that in the context of the other things that I was working on this past week because they also touch on the stories I was doing and the information I was coming up with, which is is the real story. So, again, last Monday we were discussing um, preliminarily uh, uh, President Trump's new Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh, and uh, I actually felt that that was not a bad choice. Of course, in our heart of hearts, we would probably prefer one of the other top candidates who, uh, who who would really do what we want him or her to do. But I think given the uh, very uh, delicate political situation where we're not even sure that uh, 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 Susan Collins of Maine or the uh, female senator, Republican Rhino from Alaska, will vote for this nominee, that Trump had to go with somebody who, who could be sold to almost all Republicans and try to lure two or three Democrats with a vote. Because let's face it, if this vote fails, if Kavanaugh is not approved, and God forbid the Republicans lose in lose the House and or the Senate in November, then that's the end of a conservative nominee for the Supreme Court, uh, even if President Trump is able to survive and not be impeached. So it would be better to have somebody like Kavanaugh, and then if he has a, another uh, choice in his first term, uh, he'll go for a more hardcore conservative. But anyway, that was happening a week ago. In the next day or two, that's all we heard is how the left was ratcheting up to pull out all the stops to oppose this nominee and, and, and try to get him stopped. And, uh, but on Tuesday in my world, I received a, a text from Eric Bowling, who is, uh, for 10 years was a top on-air personality at the Fox News Channel. And from 2011 until May 1st, 2017, he was the glue that held together the daily Fox News program called The Five, which airs at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. And when that show started uh, replacing Glenn Beck's show, which was on for about two and a half years, it was an okay alternative. It was kind of thrown up there as an experiment. And it did very, very well in the ratings, so it's still around to this day. And bowling was the best thing about it, in my opinion. He really had a chance to spread his wings and show himself 
as a very astute observer of not only financial topics because he had had a a, a two decade long career as a commodities trader on Wall Street and an award winning career at that. And then he got into broadcasting at CNBC and then political broadcasting at uh, Fox Business and then the Fox News Channel. And uh, he was a an early supporter of President Donald Trump, who he had known for a number of years, and very articulate. Uh, used to argue with uh, another guest on that program until he got fired. That was Bob Beckel, who ran uh, Walter Mondale's campaign in 1984, the losing campaign. And Beckel, kind of a surly, obese individual uh, who would snap at the other guest. And uh, Eric Bowling always uh, countered Beckel in a very knowledgeable way. They almost came to blows a couple of times, but it, it was actually interesting to see their arguments. And considering who's on that show now regularly, Juan Williams, I actually miss Bob Beckel. I never thought I would say that. But last August, a 900-word article uh, by a uh, journalist who had previously been a Democratic Party operative was published in the Huffington Post targeting Eric Bowling, and it alleged that he had sent a lewd text message to one or two, wasn't specified, female co-employees of Fox News at some period in the past. Uh, this was a totally non-specific article. The author claimed that he had 12 or 14 anonymous sources at Fox News who confirmed the story, but he didn't include, of course, any names or even any quotes, no quotations. Usually if you're quoting somebody anonymously, you'll at least put some quotes in because you're not attributing them to a person by name. This was the thinnest article, in my opinion, that I've ever seen that succeeded in taking Eric Bowling down. He was suspended, and a month later he parted ways with Fox News. And not only that, on the same day that he and Fox News separated, Later that day, he found out that his own, his and his wife's only child, uh, their son Eric Bowling Jr., was found dead of an opioid overdose, uh, having just returned to college for his sophomore year in Colorado. Now, if you can try and imagine what that day in the life was like for the Bowling family, I, I can't even, I couldn't imagine it then. And I still can't imagine it, even though I've gotten to know Eric Bowling a bit since then. So he and his wife uh, kind of retired from the scene for a while. Then he started tweeting again, and he took up the issue of uh, opioid abuse. He became a, a real advocate on that issue and even went into the lion's den at one point and went on Brian Stelter's show it's on CNN to talk about it, and he went on Morning Joe on MSNBC at least four times. And in fact, Bowling told me last week that he feels like he's a semi-regular on that show. And he wanted me, when I wrote an article about this, about him, to uh, to be sure to mention Morning Joe. And the reason Bowling tweeted me last Tuesday was he wanted to remind me that his new program on CRTV, Conservative Review Television, founded by um, Levin, Mark Levin, the talk show host, and also featuring Michelle Malkin, that uh, Eric Bowling now has a show on there. It started July 4th with a bus tour of the South. And uh, last Thursday, it went, it premiered at its uh, permanent home in D.C. 
in a hotel bar. It has a very casual setting. And uh, he said, well, if you're there, come by and you can be on. Well, I said, well, no, I'm not there. I'm a little bit farther away than that. But uh, we texted back and forth, and then I was inspired. And uh, at about 5 a.m. my time, I wrote a very quick article, first draft, and uh, I actually shared it with Eric. I emailed it to him for fact-checking, which is the way that serious publications used to work. They used to do fact-checking uh, to make sure that the facts were right or if there are any additional things. By the way, I wrote this exclusively for the Hagman Report. There it is. Eric Bowling is back with his new show, America, on CRTV. And I felt so good about finally being able to write an article about someone and something that I could be really positive about and and happy about and optimistic. Just so happy that Eric had finally gotten it together with a, a new job that he's so enthusiastic about. I mean, you can it just comes through the texts and it comes through the emails. And uh, so I was thrilled to do it. And then he uh, he had promised to send me copies of his books, and he had forgotten to do it. So he asked me again for my address. And then on Friday, he was texting me going, did the books come yet? Did the books come yet? Because he sent them express mail at a cost of $50 in his own handwriting, the envelope from his local post office. So he sent me his first book from 2016, Wake Up America, which he dedicated to Barack Hussein Obama because he said Obama, who was in the last year of his presidency, inspired him to write the book. And then his second book, which came out one year later, The Swamp. And how relevant is that title? You know, based on wow. President Trump's identifying the swamp and others of us using the term too. And I haven't had a chance to read these fully yet. Oh, and he inscribed them too. He, he, He's such a great guy. I love this guy. You know, he, he inscribed both of them to me. Let's see if I can find That's fantastic. And I, I mean, yeah, I, I remember when that, the swamp came out. Um, in, in fact, uh, don't be selling that on eBay now. I'll, I'll tell you what. <laughs> <laughs> um, only if I have to. <laughs> uh, so, well, that's incredible. I mean, it, it shows you the level of commitment to real, in my view, what it shows is getting the truth out there. And of course, uh. Well, and he didn't assign one of his people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. You no, know, I mean, here, any, I mean, this is just. Look at that. It's too far away to read, but, you that's know, beautiful. writing in the, the thick pen there. I mean, it was so touching and I thought, what a, what a great gift. And, uh, you know, he, He's not expecting anything from me. Uh, I mean, I already wrote the article, so wow. you know, you just want to. And and just in leafing through the books, you know, I usually read the acknowledgments, the intro, the index, and then kind of go through it quickly before I sit down and read a book. And it, it's a they're serious pieces of work. Uh, and and uh, I assume he wrote them himself because there's nobody else credited. There's no ghostwriter credited. So uh, you know, this is a smart guy we're dealing with and that's what you saw on TV and I wish him all the best on CRTV in fact there had even been uh, rumors published that he might be tapped for this new network that was presumably or, or television service that might be coming together uh, with uh, Sinclair's acquisition of Tribune Media but just today the news broke that it looks like the Federal Communications Commission is not going to be favorable to that merging. 
So we shall see what happens there. And that's unfortunate because that would have provided, if that was or is allowed to come together, it would have provided the option for creating a very powerful, competitive news channel or channels, both on possibly on terrestrial broadcasting and cable television, uh, alternative, a conservative alternative to Fox News. So we can still wonder and still hope, see what happens. But um, at the moment, Eric has his show on CRTV nightly, and it's called so, America. So, I mean, his star, I, I don't, I don't want to paint this, uh, but, but his star is rising. The information that he's rising got. Again. You know, so a, gr- a great patriot, a great American patriot talking about America and, of course, proudly doing so. Um, you can't keep a good man down. And he spells, they spell America, uh, A-M, capital E-R-I-C, small letter A. So the, the name Eric is in right. there. America, Eric is part of it. But, um, so I did that story, uh, exclusively for the Hagman Report, which went online, um, on Wednesday. Now, also on Wednesday. Oh, by the way, that, that was uh, just very, very well read. And, and just it, it's everywhere. So well, and Eric Eric Bowling tweeted it as well, yeah. and it got uh, I haven't checked lately, but initially it got uh, I think close to two thousand likes and um, incredible over five hundred retweets because yep. he's got over a million followers on Twitter, and uh, so I appreciated that, and it, it, I'm sure it really pumped up the page views at Hagman Report <laughs> yeah. for the article. But uh, okay, later on Wednesday, so this is going on. I was up. You know, most of the night to the early morning, texting Eric back and forth and the article, finishing the article, uploading it. And also that day, I put the finishing touches on the article, which I had alluded to a week ago, but didn't want to go into detail about, which was an article that uh, uh, was requested by an editor at the Epoch Times, E-P-O-C-H, and this connection came about thanks to my old friend Celia Farber, who I first met 25 years ago this month in New York City. And she is one of America's finest investigative journalists. And she is now writing for the Epoch Times, too. So she uh, asked the editor to, I guess, check out my work. And he did. And uh, we had a 90-minute long conversation two Saturdays ago, which... Uh, absolutely blew me away. I, I, I can't remember the last time where, since I talked to you for the first time, Doug, where I connected with somebody who I was totally on his wavelength about just about any issue that came up. And, and this is, this is a high level of journalism that they're doing. The Epic Times, um, is, uh, you know, we have Alexa.com, which is one of the internet rating services. They measure websites and traffic and, come up with rankings you know what what is the rank of this website well uh the epoch.com uh epoch news comes in at uh approximately 222 globally epoch times i'm sorry globally now that's amazing that means there's only 221 websites in the world that are more widely read than this one and um in terms of the United States, it's slightly lower, which is the reverse of what's usual. I think it's around 400 most read website in the United States. Usually, a website is more popular. An English language American website is more popular here than it is globally. But this publication, both online and in print, 
is online all over the place in 23 different languages and in 35 countries in the print edition. So I, I found out, well, the way this happened was I, I was supposed to submit the article uh, Wednesday evening for delivery Thursday morning. So I delivered it and the editor said, well, we'll edit it and proofread it, copy edit it on Thursday and it'll be online Friday. So on Thursday morning, I'm up early to watch uh, Peter Strzok's testimony, and I was waiting for what I thought would be the manuscript to come back to me that was edited and corrected so I could okay it. He said that's what would happen. Instead, I got an email from him which just had a URL. That's all. So I clicked on it, and there was my article already online at the Epoch Times, laid out in its finished version, publicly available. And, uh, by the way, that's the print version we're looking at there, which is so cool. This is the first time an article of mine has appeared, appeared in print on paper in at least 15 years. So I, I've, I've forgotten how much I love print, although they only send PDF, but, and that's one, that's the English language version. They have 22 other languages. I'm not sure that mine goes into all of them, but I did find it in the German edition. But anyway, so on Thursday, I see it online, and I'm absolutely blown away because as I'm reading it, I didn't see any changes in it from the, the manuscript I submitted. I expected it to be heavily edited, and so I was told this has got to be just the facts. I mean, it's a conservative publication, but they have news articles, news analysis, and then opinion. And mine was targeted for news, although it finally had a heading of news analysis, but they want it straight. They don't want opinion in news articles, although, of course, when you choose and marshal the facts, you are creating a an impression of where you're coming from and where you're going with this article, but you're not ranting, you're not you know, calling people names or whatever. It, it's straight journalism, and I've gotten kind of spoiled at American Thinker because although I like to think that I write pretty factual articles and let the facts drive the story, at American Thinker, you're encouraged to uh, let your hair down, so to speak. So I, I really labored over this, thinking back to my early days, just writing, you know, rip and read copy for radio or whatever, radio news, and there's the online version. So they even kept my original title. I, I mean, I, I was just so thrilled by that. It was like it's the greatest... It's virtually unheard of. I mean, really. Totally. And for a publication of this quality, I mean, they have editors, they have a large staff, it's it's so professional. I mean, I haven't dealt with a publication like this <laughs> in decades. I've been slumming it. No, I mean, uh, not to put down American Thinker or anybody else, but this is really serious business here. So, uh, you know, it came out in print the next day, and, I, and I, the editor sent me the two pages. Uh, you know, my article started on page 1A of the English language print edition, then went to 4A, which took up the entire page. And right next to my article on page 1A was an article by Celia Farber, who was writing her latest article on the Walk Away movement. And I thought, how perfect is that? <laughs> that Celia, who I've known and respected all these years, and she really gave me a hand with putting this deal together. And there she is, her byline right next to mine. So, I mean, this was a week to end all weeks. But to get back to the story, and I'll go back to Wednesday again. On Wednesday, uh, I knew I'd submitted this article to uh, the Epoch Times, but I had so much more information 
Uh, oh, by the way, the article at Epoch Times, just to briefly summarize that, was a new take on the Occupy movement. The editor said that he wanted me to focus on uh, were there communist, Marxist origins of the Occupy ICE movement? I mean, we know there are, but, you know, nail it down. You can't just say, well, it looks like they are, or it's obvious they are. You've got to have chapter and verse if you're going to write an article for a publication like that. So I did a lot of research, and the story was definitely there. So I told the story in just over a thousand words, and it had a lot of new and I think original research in there. So I highly recommend it. And by the way, I, I learned I, a lot. I, I read that and learned a heck of a lot, and we're, we'd urge everyone to do the same. And I previewed it. It's very easy to find. Well, you can. It's still. Oh, well, another amazing thing. I was just more amazing as it went on. Uh, my article was, of course, the lead article for much of the day at the top of uh, the website, and then. It moved over to the upper right-hand column as editor's pick, and it remained there until at the top of the website until today. So for five whole days, it was on the front page top of the website, and they update this site every day and multiple times a day. It's, it's a big website with a lot of content, and I couldn't believe that was happening. I mean, this is like, I just can't believe it. You know, I cannot believe it. So, thank God it happened, finally. Um, but, and, and now I'm on to uh, another one. They've asked me to do one for this week, which will be also on Occupy and how the Democrat Party, uh, well, the, the theme of it is going to be the Democrat Party, are they, uh, is, is, is the ICE, is the Occupy ICE ideological platform Becoming or being adopted by the Democratic Party? And the answer is yes. Now, Occupy is Marxist, Socialist, Communist, and Antifa. Last guest when you were talking about Antifa, yes, that's coming into play with Occupy ICE. And that's where the Democrat Party is going. And I've also found a lot of original, my, I think, original quotes. Uh, it's open source, but I haven't seen anybody put this together, and we'll see, hopefully, this one will uh, will make some sort of a hit in um, in the uh, Epoch Times later this week. But going back to Wednesday briefs. So on Wednesday of last week, I, I've done all this research, and and I was angry. I thought, you know, I want to do like a more opinion piece. So I I thought I'll do it for the Hagman Report, an exclusive. And uh, I wrote this piece, which is titled, let's see. The hardcore socialists are coming, and they mean business. Now, in this one, I, again, let my hair down a bit and uh, ranted in about two or three different sentences. But I started with, well, of course, there's a, a picture of our, our favorite new politician, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the Democrat socialist in good standing. i, I got to ask you something real quick, Peter. Did you catch sure. the interview? With her, uh, when they were talking about when, when I can't, I don't, I don't recall the uh, interviewer. But Margaret Hoover, Margaret Hoover. That's that was it. Did you did you see EDS. that? Oh my yes. goodness! Oh. This woman is an embarrassment to the human race, in my opinion, but to politics in particular. Yeah, she made more anti-Israel statements, pro-Palestinian statements, and then when questioned further, she admitted that she really had very limited knowledge 
of the Middle East, so she kind of almost retracted her statements. She's a mess. This woman is not ready for prime time, but she's assured pretty much of winning her election in her overwhelmingly Democrat district in the Queens and Brooklyn, New York in November because she has the nomination. And she probably and makes so, a pretty good margarita. No, uh, that's not a racist statement. It's, as the former bartender. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I started with her picture, but then I talked about, and I wanted to do this for a long time, I talked about the parallels of Nazi Germany and Hitler having, and the Nazis having basically come to power through a democratic election. A lot of people don't realize that. And uh, so the Nazis had a majority in the Reichstag or Parliament in 1932. And in 1933, they had enough power to demand that Adolf Hitler be appointed Chancellor of Germany. And once he had that role, he assumed dictatorial powers. And we saw what happened over the next 12 and a half years uh, in, in Western Europe, the Holocaust, etc. And then I uh, took in what's happening with Occupy, Antifa, socialists, communists, and the Democratic Party. Again, just quoting uh, the open source record. I, I feel like I'm the only person who actually delves into the social media of these radicals and just quotes them and cites what they say about themselves. And meanwhile, all these Democrats leading Democrat politicians falling over themselves to fawn over and suck up to the Democrat socialist Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, there was an article in The Hill the other day uh, pointing out how she's about to uh, visit Washington, D.C. for the first time, and the Democrat leadership, they're all falling over themselves in the Congress because they, they're ready to anoint her as one of their new top leaders. And the head of the party... Um, DNC chairman uh, Perez is that his name? He said that she yeah. is the future. She is the future of the Democratic Party. Well, he, so they have jumped shark into Marxism-Leninism. That's the only thing they are now outed as true communists. Yep. And Peter, I'm not saying it. They're saying it. Yep. Did you see last week? Tom Perez also said that Obama was still the. Uh, basically the president of the United States, the legitimate president of the United States. Oh. So that tells you where his head, head is at. Right. Yeah. So that uh, that article, which again, I highly recommend. Um, oh, and th that's the article that, by the way, was uh, uh, previewed and linked, and it's still there on the front page of michaelsavage.com. The way they do it is they preview anywhere from 25 to 50% of an article of the text and then they put a link if you want to read the rest go to Hagman Report so it's at uh, michaelsavage.com and it has its own page there as well there's the, the page the way they excerpt it or at least that's a screenshot of the top of it and it goes on for a few more paragraphs they do a really nice job and the webmaster told me because I noticed they, they kept it near the top of michaelsavage.com for quite a while, longer than usual, because usually things just scroll on down. And she said when I exchanged emails with her a um, day or two later that it had done very well there. And uh, I was happy to hear that. And what often happens is people will read the preview of the article and most of them never get around to clicking through to, in this case, Hagman Report. So however many page views came in to the Hagman Report, probably multiply it by 10, 20 or more with the number who actually read most of it or about half of it 
at michaelsavage.com. So I was pleased to see that that was getting readership, but it's still at hagmanreport.com, and I'd be really happy if people within the sound of my voice could make their way there, hagmanreport.com, Hagman with two N's, and please check out that article because it uh, it represents uh, Peter Barry Chalka unplugged. Yes, it does. And that, I, that's the kind of forum the Hagman Report is. I mean, I'm not trying to libel anyone or say anything uncouth. In fact, originally I did use a uh, Mexican language obscenity, and I corrected that. I changed it to just fill in the blank here. <laughs> but, uh, you know, meanwhile, I do quote the Occupy movement, and they use words, swear words all over the place. In fact, your previous guest mentioned something that went on at uh, Portland, and somebody sent me a link to a YouTube video which was put online by Occupy Ice Portland, in which several of the occupiers were being arrested by Federal Protective Service outside ICE headquarters in Portland, where there is this tent village. So a couple of these ruffians were being arrested, and uh, the rest of the occupiers, who number more than a 100, possibly several hundred, who are permanently camped in there, and they're allowed to stay there because there's no law and order in Portland, Oregon anymore. And they are videoing themselves screaming, yelling, hurling epithets, at the federal police and uh, the number of F words was so frequent that there's no way you could bleep it. The whole soundtrack of the two or three minute video was F words except when they were using N words. They were actually calling the federal police the N word and I didn't see any actual black people among the federal police. So this is what the lovely occupiers, Occupy ICE, how they conduct themselves. I mean, they are dirtbag scum, and this is who this is. This is the tail leading the Democratic Party dog, wagging the Democratic Party dog. Are these communist, Marxist, socialist scum who you wouldn't want to run into on a sidewalk or on a street late at night? because you wouldn't know what they would do to you. So that's who's <laughs> holding court in Portland, Oregon right now. So I'm working on uh, another part of this story. It'll be my fifth or sixth article on Occupy, and, and there's really no end to it because we see that the Democrats are getting into it now. And then uh, I think Ocasio-Cortez should be questioned about this because she's uh, she's not being held to account. And, and, you know, this whole Democrat Socialist of America group, which... Yep. Uh, the writer Ron Radosh studied and said basically they are now Stalinist. Socialists used to be, you know, there was that saying that a socialist is uh, a communist before he puts a gun to your head. Right. Well, I think they are now taking out their weapons. I mean, we say the Democrat Socialists of America took responsibility for an incident in Los Angeles over the weekend where they, uh, DSA people attacked a group of uh, Trump supporters at a, a public bar establishment and drove them out of there. Also, DSA uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, harassed Senator Mitch McConnell and his wife when they were out to dinner, and they then tweeted, DSA at their official count tweeted, that uh, McConnell will not be allowed to eat in public any, anymore if we have anything to say about it. So they're echoing... Uh, Maxine Waters and others who are raising the level of this harassment to a very dangerous level now. And again, to dial it back to Nazi Germany, 
uh, 90 years ago. The situations, of course, are very, very different, or 85 years ago. It's a different world. But you can see certain parallels where you have outliers, dirtbags, bums being promised a better pie-in-the-sky life by socialist dictators like Hitler or like the crew who are moving into power here now through the Democratic Party. And they also rely on thugs to do their dirty work, to divide people, in that case the Jews and, and others who they went after, homosexuals, gypsies, and they target them, blame them. Well, what's happening now? If you're a conservative, a Trump supporter, you wear a MAGA hat, or you're a Christian, it's open season on you now for anything up to and including maybe physical harassment. Just ask uh, Representative Steve Scalise about how far that can go. Yeah. So we're on a very slippery path, rapidly downhill into the violent abyss. We only have about uh, three minutes left, two minutes left. Peter, where does Obama fit in, if anywhere, in this um is he behind some of the organizational aspects, whether it's a DSA or uh, I, I know he's BFFs with uh, Perez, but have you found any direct evidence? They've hidden their tracks really well. I mean, okay. we w- there's been enough reporting, and of course our common sense tells us as well, that Barack Hussein Obama at his headquarters in D.C. and including his uh, full-time resident there, Valerie Jarrett, uh, his political brain, uh, that they're up to no good. But they're really covering their tracks. So far, they're not letting anything out of the bag. There have been lots of reports and rumors that he'll be emerging much more full-scale as we get closer to the fall and possibly campaigning. But we we can certainly imagine that he's working behind the scenes, but I haven't seen anybody come up with any uh, hard evidence yet or even any initial reports, but we keep looking, and, uh, you know, clearly he's uh, he, he's part of the brain trust there, and, of course, there's people above him, too, pulling sure. the strings. But, I, I, you know, we haven't seen the last of Hussein Obama, I would say, but, but I was thinking the other day, isn't it nice that he's not really in the news much anymore, that really... Uh, we don't have him to worry about, at least on the front burner. He may be on the back burner now, but at least he's out of, he's off the radar, and I, I really appreciate and enjoy that. I much <laughs> rather pay attention to President Trump. Amen. Amen. Peter, you're taking us right to the end of the show. The hour flew by so fast, wow. I can't believe we're done. Great as always.